0: from an educational standpoint, as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who is nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid- career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-month progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript Perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to provide, motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Welcome to another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. My guest for today's show is Chris Ballard, who is the co-founder and principal of McWilliams Ballard. Chris uh, began his career in residential development sales at with David Mayhood's company, and then he met his current partner, Ross McWilliams, th- there, and they decided to start their firm in 1996, beginning with... Uh, Charles E. Smith Company and the Hazel Peterson Company's initial clients, which was a pretty good start at that time. So Chris and Ross, as I said, formed it, the firm in 1996 with the focus collaborating with developers in the conceptualization, conceptualization, design, marketing, and sales of new condominium and townhouse communities. To date, the firm has sold over 40,000 homes in 13 states, representing over $14 billion in sales. Uh, Other services include market research, feasibility studies, and best practice consultation. The firm is consistently ranked among the top 10 national firms with a focus on project development, sales, and marketing. Chris tells his story about growing up in Northern Virginia, being very entrepreneurial. His dad was an entrepreneur in the the affordable housing space. He uh, was eager to get involved in in residential real estate early in his career while he was in college he joined uh, David Mayhood's company learned the business started accessing the the market and his first client was Milt Peterson while he was there uh, which was an interesting story that he shares he built the company up to be one of the top firms in uh, the mid-2000s and then all of a sudden 2008 hit and he had both business challenges as well as a personal uh, health challenge, which he talks about. So Chris is, after that, kind of segmented the business into three parts, kind of the pre-development stage for a project, then the actual marketing of the project during uh, during the lease-up or the sell, sell-out process, and then the closing process, getting the closings and all that done. And he talks about that in some detail. And he also talks about how he built his firm and how he's managed it over these more very challenging cyclical times in the marketplace. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Chris Ballard. So Chris Ballard, welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. I appreciate it very much. You and your partner, Ross McWilliams, started McWilliams Ballard, a leading residential real estate brokerage firm in 1997, I understand. Please describe your role there, here, at the high level and how it's evolved over the years since founding the company.
1: Thank you first for having me, I appreciate
0: it. You're Um, welcome. A lot of current and former
1: clients on your list, so it's interesting to see, Um, I'm just glad to be with you. So essentially our business is working for developers that are primarily developing for sale product, uh, condominiums being the biggest component of our business, and then the segment of uh, townhomes and single family. And typically, you know, we're involved from acquisition to the last settlement, you know, kind of cradle to grave, as we say. And so, you know, in a perfect world, we're kind of working in three buckets, acquisition and planning we're working with developers to do unit floor plan design amenities, finishes the look and feel of the exterior of the building interior design kind of in that pre-sale phase and then the second phase is selling and marketing the properties and then the third phase is obviously the settlement and completion and what's you know, rewarding and kind of interesting for us is we have a real, obviously, B2B component of what we do, right? We're working with developers on a day-to-day basis. But then we have to translate that into a B2C, right? And so, you know, we kind of serve two segments of the market, our developer clients, and then our, you know, uh, prospective homeowners, the consumers that are out in the marketplace.
0: Well, I want to get into your business model a little later. Yep because I assume that you're not gonna do all the upfront money thing for free. You're gonna nope. somehow get paid there before you start selling units. So right. we'll get into that business model a little bit later. But before then, let's get into your origin story if we could a little bit. Sure. First, uh, where did you grow up?
1: So my family's from
0: Louisville, Kentucky. Oh, okay. So I was not born
1: there, I was born in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. My dad was in grad school at the University of Cincinnati. So I was born there, lived there about five months, and then we moved to Ann Arbor. So, really? Yep. So
0: I lived That's my in, alma mater?
1: Yep. So I lived there until I was probably about six and a half. Okay. And then what'd your FCH. dad do? So my dad worked for a company called FCH, which was the foundation for cooperative housing. Oh. Yeah. And so it was set up in the 50s, mid-50s. Huh. And it used the old, if you remember, the old Section 236. And so the financing was government-backed 40-year mortgages. But then they had this buy-down program where you could buy the rate down to a percent. And so it was a 501c3, but they had an execution arm that was the development arm. Was this dedicated just
0: to to co-ops then?
1: Co-ops and affordable housing. Okay. And so really their job was to develop a stable of builders around the country Got it. that would build this product. And so his job was to get together with them and coordinate the back-end process with HUD. Interesting. And so he was in
2: grad school, was hired by his future business partner to move to uh, Detroit,
1: and so did that there for you know six years and then his partner moved to dc and said you know i want you to come with me Um, and that's kind of how how we ended up here Mm -hmm. stayed since so you know growing up i had my parents were married 50 years my dad died about five years ago Mm -hmm. heart attack but before that they were you know childhood sweethearts great together all the time you know i had a Pretty excellent childhood. No complaints. Two of your brothers were about five years apart. So, you know, my first early time period, I was a little bit like an only child. Did you grow
0: up in Virginia or where would you
1: grow I grew up? grew up in Annandale. Annandale. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so. Public school? No, parochial Catholic school. Okay. And then, you know, Catholic high school. Which one? Bishop Byron. Bishop Byron. Yeah, sure. One of okay. was all boys. Okay. Yeah. And All right. so, you know, kind of going back, my my mom was a real, she just had a thing about independence and sort of being independent. And so, you know, I was treated a lot like an adult, very early. You know, we lived in Detroit.
2: My mom put me on a plane four and a half by myself to
1: fly, wow. back, fly to Louisville to see my grandfather. I mean, stuff that would get you in social services today right you know but she just always kind of did not have an issue with throwing me into situations how did you feel about that i mean i had no problem i mean she would send me in the post office buy stamps do this not in a you know just sort of like i always just had a comfort talking to adults and so you know she kind of leaned into that Wow. And so, you know, I thank her. because High confidence
0: like, level in your... Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, you know, was it warranted? Who knows? But, you know, I kind of came out of it like really, you know, not having kids spend a lot of time talking about it with them. Like, got to be able to talk to the adults, right? Like, that's a real key component of success when you're young, especially when you're out getting that new
2: job, mm-hmm. right? You know, that can't be the first time you're having really deep
1: substantive adult conversations because it's so, going to be a tough it's going to be tough sledding
0: let me guess so, that your teachers saw that in you and you became a leader early on in your life is that, is that an accurate statement
1: probably a little bit of the opposite really I, I was well you know I was one of the original you know pre-ADHD
3: uh, it was called
1: hyperactivity okay. you know back then Got it. so I had to go every. Every day at noon, I had to go to the nurse's office to get my Ritalin. Ooh. So, I mean, you know, i get my work done, and then i kind of cause trouble because I was bored. I kind mm-hmm. need uh, of needed constant stimulation. And so it sort of fits what we're doing today. Yeah. Because if you think about our business, success means you don't have a job, right? Mm-hmm. You start with 100, and the goal is zero, and then it's over. And so, but then there's something new to replace it. It's new and fresh.
0: Right. And so
1: that kind of, you know, that's not for the faint of heart. You know, if you have a management business and you're getting repetitive income, that's certainly one thing. Our business is a little lumpy, right? And you have to be comfortable sort of,
0: the goal is to get to zero. Mm -hmm. Um, So it fits
2: my personality, I
1: guess I'd say.
0: How did you? How early on did you learn that about yourself, or did your your parents learn that about you? You know, I mean i i was a
1: I was a fine student, but I wasn't a great student because I never really applied myself. Right. You know, I'd I'd, I'd have super high
2: mm-hmm.
1: aptitude scores, right, but but then the grades would never really match. Mm-hmm. And you know, years later, I sort of say to my dad, like. How did you, now that I have kids, like how did how yeah. did you accept this? Yeah. right? And he would just say, you know, I always knew everything was gonna figure itself out and that I'm not sure I could have forced an outcome differently without really setting up constraints that would be you know, a little torturous. And you know, so that's hard to do as in, you know, I look at myself as a parent. It's like could I do that? You know, could I accept what I know is not to the uh,
0: ability, yeah. right? You've got the classic broker
1: <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, mentality. exactly. He's like, <laughs> he said,
0: You're gonna be, yeah, this guy's going to be a broker and should just forget yeah. about everything else, right? Right, right. Uh, so when did you know that you can make deals? Did you? I mean, how early on did you play games and make deals and, you know, structure your life around transactional type uh, you know, it's funny, it's a, it's a good question.
1: I, you know, I, I was always sort of coming up with a, a scheme for our friends, yeah. what we would do, right. how we would do it. Right. And, and so in that sense, I wasn't a leader in maybe the traditional positive sense. I was a leader in the sort of getting up to yeah. to no good. What, yeah. what are we going to do today? Right. you know Are we going to run through the So you light down? the spark. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, I, it was generally on me when things were happening. You know,
0: mm-hmm. nothing, nothing crazy. But, yeah, we definitely had. So that was through high school, and then you went to college, then to yeah, talk about so, that experience.
1: Yeah, and so I mean, what was interesting is so we're in, in DC, and my dad and his partner ended up with my partner, my dad's partner's brother, they ended up buying out FCH. Okay, right? and so they were then private, and so they won a large urban renewal job in Edison, New Jersey, to do a whole massive wow. development. Okay, and so and my dad was sort of tasked with the day-to-day running of it, and so
2: you know this is now like fifth fifth grade, and so he would leave Sunday night, drive to New
1: Jersey, be there Monday through Friday. Get home at like 11 o'clock Friday night. Sure. He was home less than 48 hours. For and so after,
3: you know, two or three months, my mom's like,
1: this is not a good long-term strategy. Like we have three boys. I, you know, we're not doing this. And so we moved to New Jersey, you know, like halfway through fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm the opposite of an army brat, right? I've been here essentially my whole life. And and consistency is like, you know, for better or for worse, kind of a hallmark of my life. And so that was like a complete, you know, unearthing. But I got it. We wanted to be together as a family. And so, you know, we moved there.
2: And, you know, the funny thing is, they were doing a big senior housing
1: development, you know, 300 high tech tax credit deal.
2: 250 single families and then a neighborhood, uh, you know, grocery anchored shopping center. And so
1: single families, this is 1986 maybe. The market's really hot. They plan on it selling in three years. It sells out in like six months. All 250. My God. It's crazy. And so, you know, consequently, they had three models that they had sold and done three year lease back right? Because, you know, you figure they're going to need them. And so we lived in a model home the (laughs) entire time we lived in New Jersey. So I was like, you know, we say I was like the pre-arrested development, you know, before that show. Like we came in fake, you know, fake fruit on the table, the fake furniture. The only thing we replaced were the prop TVs, um, so you were we, born for this, yeah. Business. yeah. I mean, I lived in a model for
0: three years. You were years. born for this, business. yeah. So,
1: <laughs> which is just sort of like you know, kind of bring it full circle. Uh, and then when we came back, he went into land development, you know, single family, some condos.
0: So, you've been around real estate for, your entire my life, my entire
1: life, all observational. Um, right, you know, he had a partner from when he was 27 to when he died at 72 or so. What is that? for You know, a 45-year single partnership <clears throat> with one person where I never saw them fight, never saw them wow. have a disagreement. That's so great. It really, you know, time is a flat circle. Just that's sort of been the outcome of, of my life with a partner of 20 seven years and we've been working together for 32. So it does
0: kind of come full circle in that way. So when you went to college, you pretty much knew what you wanted to do then to some extent, or at least know that you were to get back in it, or did you?
1: I did, I did. And so it was my senior of high school. Okay. And it was the summer before I started college and I went to my dad and I said, hey, listen, I think I really need to get in the business and understand it. And he said, oh, great, okay. And so he was building a 200-unit condominium development in Alexandria at the time. And he said, great, I'll connect you with Erwin. And Erwin was his construction manager, rigid German, ran the thing like clockwork. I mean, the guy you want building your buildings, right? And so I called Erwin up. And I said, hey, you know, I know my dad talked to you. I'm ready to go. He said, yeah, no, great. You know, be here tomorrow at 5 a.m. You know, on the dot. We start at 5. We go to 2. So I'm like,
2: okay, all right. So I hang
1: up. I go over to my dad. I'm like, hey, so what else is there to do in real estate? And he goes, why? I said, I just, you know, 5 a.m., I'm not, is, I'm not fielding it for my uh, senior year summer. I said, what else is there to do? He goes, well, there's, you know, sales and marketing. And I said, great. So, you know, what time do those guys come in? He's like, oh, you know, they come in at 11. Right. And I right. said, well, I think I want to own a sales and marketing company when <laughs> I grow up. And so that, you know, that's what I did. I worked as a as a host that summer you know, got my license when I was 18, and,
0: you know, went to work for David while I was a freshman. In so you were in college, college. and you are working for David. So I mean, worked
1: full-time, you know, 40-plus hours all through college and, and went to school full-time. Wow. So, I, you know,
0: yeah, I knew that's what I was going to do. So I interviewed Bob Young and Todd. Yeah. And... That was about the same time they started their company. Was that was your project and theirs about the same time, your dad's project? Is, is it when they was. Started.
1: You know, I think before they went, there was Rivergate right here, and that was sort of the last, one of the first deals they did before they spun off and took everything in-house. Yeah, so it was, you know, they were holiday, you know, prior to. Right. was a right. time client, one of our earliest clients. So right. Set that massive respect. You know, talk to people over there on a weekly basis we have a great relationship with them they just
0: they, it did just never make, they didn't make they it. didn't make money on that first job they, they did not that. they did not yeah. Yeah. but you know there's
1: nobody better at what they do and it's a great lesson
0: that you know, early on I didn't believe that you
1: could build brand equity as a as a smaller developer
0: and uh, you know it's totally not true you can't and they did, and they have. Certainly.
1: And incredible reputation
0: that people follow. Mm-hmm. So you went to work for David. So what did you learn yeah. from David Mayhood?
1: Well, you know, I learned a lot, obviously, because I was very young and, you know, like any maybe 18 or 19 year old, thought I knew more than I did. So it was a great observational time period. And interesting, my first day on the job was Valentine's Day, 1989, right? Literally maybe five days after the music stopped. Yeah, I went to work as an assistant on a job. The job, you'll get love this. It had been closed for, I think, six months because they had sold too fast. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to make sure that they could catch up yeah. from a construction standpoint. Sure. Of course, All they right. opened back up. It's over. Dead. It's over. You know, prices fall 20%. And within a year, that job's back to, I think, Ameribank who ended up doing the workout. And so that was my first time in the business. And, you know, I, I tell our younger people here, like, this is the best time to be in the business. You can't time your entry, but getting in when it's hard is so much better than getting in when it's good. Because I watched so many people get in in 2000, 2001, and they went seven years with nothing. It all went their way. and the, You know, there's a reckoning when you don't know what bad looks like. That's right. You have a hard time dealing with it, sort of you know, justifying it, accepting it, right? And so, you know, my experience, I was so fortunate because it was just bad in 89, bad in 90, bad in 90, you know. It was bad for five years. And so when it got good, it just felt like a gift, right? I mean, you, you sort of re- refine and hone your skills. And you know, when you go interview people later, you know, very sophisticated developers, they want to know you've been through stuff, right? Fire. Yeah. They they don't want they don't want somebody who hasn't been through that. And so there were many times where, you know both with him and on our own, and you would tell people you had been through that, you'd share those stories and say, okay, you know, these if things go bad, these guys aren't going to fold.
0: Stay alive till 95. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, out of that, I then,
1: you know, while I was in college, you know, he put me up to be a salesperson. And so, you know, I went around interviewing with a number of, Developers that you would know, and to a person,
2: everyone's like, "Nope, no way. We're putting a 19-year-old on our job.
1: We're just not doing it. Just full stop." And so, I finally get to Peterson, to Hazel Peterson, right? And so, go to the job, build snare with this son and you know, talking to him. He says, you know, listen, Chris, I was 18 years old. Uh, I got into the business selling homes mm-hmm. for Jonas. Steve Jonas. And yep. it made me what I am today. And I bet that this is the fifth interview you've had. And I bet that five, four people told you hell no. And he said, I'm going to give you a shot. Don't fuck it up.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and I'm like, okay, I you know, I won't. And, I love Bill Hitterpiece. Oh, I love and, I mean, that man. It, it, You know, he gave me a shot and, I love and that no man. one else would. And, and, and so, you know, it, it comes full circle because he became a client and you know, we did all of National Harbor together from three years of planning to you know 650 units of for sale housing. And one of the most rewarding Relation, you know, relationships and clients I've ever had. Um, just an incredible guy. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about gut versus data, right? And, and so is there anybody better that I've met that would look at everything,
0: go on their gut and, you know, be right almost all the time? I mean, he just so when he sense. was looking, when Milt was looking to buy National La- the site for National Landing, did you talk to him at that time when he was considering that acquisition? I mean, did you have a a sense of his thinking process of trying to buy that big tract? And I mean, he always went. He was as his fu- as his son called him. He was a garbage collector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he said yeah. that you know John yeah. called his own son yeah, called yeah. him a garbage collector. Yeah. So yeah. he was picking up trash and turning it into treasure. I mean, incredible vision. And what
1: was great is there would be a debate about what
2: to do. And then there would be, this is what we're doing.
1: And and so, you you know, like you, you start to see different organizations and how they operate. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you need somebody at the helm to say, this is what we're doing. That's right. I've taken all the data, taken everyone's input. We're going in this direction. Mm-hmm. Get on board. Yep. And, and it makes a difference. Like you, there, there can be uh, a paralysis uh, of looking too much at the data. And he was incredible at just, you know, he would take a look, and he was just really forthright in his convictions. So well, I think very sad gonna- that he he passed. Uh,
0: he and you know just a great organization. Well, just every major developer that's successful usually has one person that makes the final call on most big decisions. I mean, I've seen partnerships work pretty well, but usually there's one guy or lady that makes the final call usually on most everything.
1: Yeah, I would say probably you know maybe JBG pre you know pre-public. It's maybe the one
0: exception. Well, clients if done. Ben Jacobs wants to get something oh, yeah, done, yeah, ben, for sure that would happen, yep. right? No, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, if you had to pick one person in each, and Rob Stewart, maybe when yeah. Ben was stepped down, yep, you know, those two guys made the call. Yep. So, it's,
1: it's so true,
0: yeah, and of course, Matt Kelly today. So, that's been the evolution of the firm. Although, you know, you're right, it's collaborative, they've always were collaborative. And. And they they still are. I mean, they're current crime today, and, you know,
1: nothing but good things to say about the vision that they're executing.
0: So you were with David for four years or so, roughly? 89 to 96.
1: Oh, seven years. Okay. Just about seven years. Okay. And so, you know, my partner Ross was there. He started, I think, in 87. Okay. So he had had a prior, you know, he had been at Stanley Martin. Of that, Mm -hmm. so sure, been in home building, yep. And so, you know, I didn't know him. I was at the office one day and met him, and he went to David and said, I want to be paired up with this guy on the next job. You know, and I'm like 18 years old, and so we started working together out at Worldgate for Charles E. Smith, and it was pretty obvious you know we were together for six years I mean I went to a few other jobs but primarily we were together for about six years and it was just pretty obvious that it was one of these things that I always knew I was going to run my own business I mean, I'd watch my dad and it was sort of to me it was a foregone conclusion that I was going to end up in that position you know I back to college I I did okay, but I definitely didn't excel because I was just
2: fully focused on, Mm -hmm. you know, I have a great group of friends I
1: developed from that time and Mm -hmm. kind of a running joke that, you know, be reminiscing about this trip and that trip. I'm like, yeah, I was at work. No, I was (laughs) at work. You know, I mean, which is fine. I'm not Um, complaining. You know, it turned out the way I wanted it to turn out, but I was really focused on learning what I needed to learn so that I could get to the next in my life. Uh, And so yeah, we worked
0: together for for six years and then you know decided to go out on your own. So what was the turning point of that decision making going out on your own?
1: I mean we saw some opportunity in the Mm -hmm. client base. And so you know Ross and I sat down and I mean it's really amazing you know I'm 25 years old. If we're honest Like, I have no assets, right? You know, I don't have a lot to contribute financially. And you've got another person who's 40 at the time. And he's saying, we're going to do this, and we're going to be 50-50 partners out of the box. There's never going to be a question. We are in it together 50-50. I mean, who
2: who
0: does that, right, at 40? Um, So it's just sort of an amazing thing. You know, what's amazing is the analogous story to you and Bob Young and Todd. Almost yeah, exactly yeah. the same story with, with, Terry. with our Terry Akin. Yeah, no. And it's
1: just, I, listen, I mean, he just decided this is what we're going to do and this is how we're, mm-hmm. we're going to do it. Right, And you know, here we are three years later. And so <laughs> it's really remarkable. I mean, you can really ask anybody. We, we just get along. We never had a fight. We never raised our voices at each other. Even after all the crazy things that have happened, do you complement each other in
0: skills, or we do you?
1: we do? I'm I'm probably a little bit more analytic and probably a little bit more operationally focused, and he is. I consider myself an extrovert, but he's really an extrovert, and so he's just an incredible judge of talent. You know, he can meet somebody and within now or sort of figure out if they're going to work
0: in our organization and if they're going to be a good salesperson or not. And that's a gift that you just, you know, he's just very, very good. Well running a firm like this, you have, you know, your assets are your people. It's all or nothing. I mean if you don't have good people it
1: doesn't matter. Well anything you can have a great brochure and I can show you a lot of our technology, but if the point of sale isn't right,
0: you don't have anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and So, mm-hmm. we sort of really figured out that that's what we needed to do. So, how did you build credibility as a firm? How did you get going? So, we, you know, we left David
1: and went to Smith and, you know, what was interesting is they hired us and they had two jobs. Job in Skyline, the a job at Wargate. And yep. so our whole company was just the two of us each selling those jobs. That was it. You know, I lived in, in an apartment in old town. It was unit two. I made business cards that said suite two. And I had a fax machine that <laughs> at the house with a different phone number. And, and that was it. I mean, we're just sort of kind of faking our way through because we just had one client. And, you know, what we did have and was attention. We could give a lot of attention, right? Because we didn't have a lot of clients. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was early on kind of a key differentiator. And we were on the ground every day. And so we were giving them direct feedback that was not filtered.
2: And so that
1: is something that's carried forward for us today. We let all of our, let, it's not the right word, we encourage our salespeople to have a direct relationship with the developer, right. so the developer doesn't have to feel like we're getting information filtered. We have, we want them to, we encourage them to have that interaction, mm-hmm. and so it's really a sales person first. We try to run it that way. That's great. But you know, Bob Smith, Al Neely. I mean, Neely. you know, having first clients like that, just
0: what'd you learn from Alan oh, Bob, I mean, and Bob? You know, Bob Smith is something.
1: Oh, but you know, Al, we would have Friday breakfast at the Mayflower at 6am. There he you would go. Make us show up. And and every week he'd say, if you don't have a new idea this week, I'm firing you. Wow. And so he, he wasn't really going to fire us, but you know, it really, look, I, I never had a client before. Right. And so it, it, he really sort of helped hone your mind to like, All right, I need to focus on how I'm bringing the change and difference and value each and every week. And you're on the clock Friday morning at 6 a.m. And so he was great. And he was hard and tough, but very fair. And, I, you know, we learned a tremendous amount. And Bob, you know, we didn't have as much
0: contact
1: with Bob but right. he's one of the few people in my life who's so intimidating. I was so, and, and, and there was no reason, right? He was he was nothing but respectful, complimentary, supportive every time I dealt with him, but he just intimidated, right? Because he was just, you know, a legend. Uh, I was selling. Well, so is milk, right? right? So was Milt, yeah. But Milt has a disarming way. Of course. Right? Milt and, is and, so... It's just a disarming way that you just, that washed away. and, and, right. and It's a funny story, so... I'm selling this job in Skyline, and you know this is this is '97. I mean, things are not great. Yeah. And so Bob doesn't visit the sites very often, but it comes down on a Monday. On Sunday, Bob's flying back in from where he is, and on his way home, he's he and Clarice are going to stop by the site. Right. Tuesday, all these trucks show up at the site. They paint the clubhouse. They tear out all the landscaping. They re-landscape new trees, new shrubs, new flowers, new mulch. On Wednesday, they bring asphalt and re-asphalt the entire site. So Sunday...
0: In anticipation
1: of Bob's visit. Sunday, Bob (laughs) comes, Bob and Clarice come. (laughs) <laughs> and I give him the whole tour, and finally he stops and says, Chris, I just, I just have a question. I said, sure, Bob, anything. He's like, this place looks great. I don't understand why we aren't selling more. <laughs> and I said, well, listen, Bob, if you promise to come once a month, I promise I'll get us out of here twice as fast as you think we can. I mean, it was just like the craziest thing I ever seen, right? And so, I mean, just, you know, it was just a lot of fun times. And so, you know, after that, the two of us were each on the job. We get to the end. Now what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. And so Christopher Companies comes along. You know, we had known Marlene Lash, who was over there at the time. And so they hired us to do a condominium job in Cedar Lakes, right outside of Fair Lakes. And so I'm uh, still a client today, which is great. You know, all this time later, we're still working with them. And so Ross and I worked on one job together, selling condominiums. And so one of us would be on site, the other would be out trying to develop new business, yeah, business right? Business, right. And so, and that was really, call it, 99, 2000, and you know, we got to 2001 and finally said, I think we now have enough
0: out there so that we can stop selling, stop producing, and really focus on you know, growing the business. But, you know, it took five you know, five Before years. you started hiring.
1: Yeah, it took, it took five years to get to the point where we were growing a business that we did not have to service by selling ourselves. But it also became the pivot, right? Because we became a sales-focused first organization. And we went to recruit talent, people we'd say, we were salespeople. We, we, we want to run this sales first. <laughs> and, and we're not asking you to do anything we haven't just done ourselves. And so that really... Eventually resonated with with getting really good people. We appreciated that we had been through what they're going through, taking a draw, working the financial part, doing a lot of pre-sale. You know all the things that go into it. Uh, so it really just became like the focus of our organization
0: was the sales team. But of course, your mentor was looking at you saying, hmm, these these guys are growing. So how are we gonna hold off the competition? So how did you differentiate yourself from David Mayhood's company then?
1: You know, back to it, I would say, you know, for us as we were growing and like I said, didn't have a lot of clients, it right. was attention. Okay. And and trying, and again, just not to impugn uh, him at all, but just you know really try to focus on the attention and and working round the clock. I mean, you know, those, I don't think I'll ever work harder than I worked in those time periods, you know, seven, like anybody that's growing a business, seven days a week, 12 hours of, you know, be in the office, just whatever it took to sort of make sure that we were going the extra bit to differentiate ourselves. Mm-hmm. And then again, that sales person first, mentality really did resonate mm-hmm. with with developers. And so, you know, and then it was just fortunate because you go back to Smith, and and so you know, I always have this joke, like if I had time, I'd do a Venn diagram of where all of these people from Smith went, mm-hmm. right? Sure. And so you could then say, well, JBG's is probably the, you know, the next, company that you could do that diagram right and so we just ended up going and read of hamburgers at holiday mm-hmm. start doing work for holiday the jpi and on and on and on of people that were there mm-hmm. I still probably have four or five people that i still do work with that were back there at smith mm-hmm. and that's just sort of you know again i tell our people here you know, the analyst you're dealing with today is the developer. Of the that future. sole sourcing you five years from now. Yeah. So you better treat everybody up and down the same. You, oh, know, yeah. you want to go to the top person. You want to focus all your time. You want to show them that you're making a difference. You can show them to get attention. But the reality is, everyone else is just as consequential in the future if you have a long term view of it. If you have a short term view, Certainly not. But if you're saying, you know, five years from now, I want to be the go-to for these people,
0: then a good point. you would know, do that. So your first 10 years were probably pretty strong with considerable home building and multifamily development going on until about 2007 when, when the residential market was overbuilt and overvalued. Talk about the market leading up to that time and the sudden reversal and difficult times that you and how did you manage through those?
1: Sure. So I think, you know, 2001 is when things really changed for us, right? Okay. And so Holiday and Ackridge were doing a, a development called the Hartford and Clarendon, and it was our first, you know, mid-rise, high-rise condominium mm-hmm. development. And it was kind of the first job that we started to run things the way we have run them since. A lot of front-end promotion, building to a launch event, building a list, you know, really getting people excited, right? Because condominium market is, a lot of it goes on momentum differently than towns and singles. And so you have to try to build some momentum up front.
0: Was that yours and Chris's, uh, I mean, yours and uh, Ross's idea to to come up with that pre-development strategy? It it, it
1: was, it was, yeah. And so, and that was maybe a different than what was happening at the time. Interesting. Um, And so we developed this strategy, you know, we're very excited. Mm -hmm. This is as important a deal as there is for our company because we're five years in. And I leave the sales meeting Three weeks before we launch, I leave the sales meeting and in in Clarendon, I'm driving back to our office in Old Town because I had moved and we'd taken our off My old apartment gutted it and turned it into an office because it was sort of, it could be residential or off, our office, right? And so we're driving by the Pentagon, 30 seconds after the plane hits. Oh, And My so, goodness. you know, we pull over and we're just kind of standing there watching.
0: You the, can see the smoke you know, coming out of the pen was, again?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, was, it was insane, right? And I'm sure everyone's got their stories, Of right? course. But and we're just like, you know, we go back to the office, and you remember I me. Mean, of course I the do. The world just stopped for 14 days. Nothing happened. And so besides all the other things you're worried about, we are three weeks away from the most consequential project of our business careers. Wow. Like, oh boy. Wow, what now, what? And so, you know, we, we, we launched, we delayed it maybe a week, but we launched 20 days after, it was like the last week of, of September. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think we sold 20 units in the first week and just said, Really? Okay, we're gonna be okay. Everything's gonna be okay, but man, I mean those—you know—those three weeks. It's like, are we done? Is this or is it? Is there not going to be any more development? Will there be any buyers there? This yeah. was
0: in Ballston,
1: Clarendon. Oh, Clarendon, right, the Clarendon Metro. You know, okay. We were trying to get three hundred dollars a foot, which seemed insane at the time, right? So now make sure that get your hard costs
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, right and
1: and you know again it just sort of from there you know from there it became jbg someone left holiday went to jbg brought us over there and you know 2002 was really when we started doing work with them and then you know it really got momentum probably did over a dozen jobs for them, thousands of units, you know, and then Carlisle, thousands of units of them working around the country. Uh, Kettler, thousands of units. Sure. And it was just, you know, 2002, three, four,
0: five, and most of six were so incredible. how many people did you have in your organization between 20, 2001 and 2007?
1: 2005. We sold 5,200 condos that year. Wow! So about 100 condos a week in we 57 launch parties. I had 226 people that worked for us. Wow! And so it was truly insane, insane, really, really crazy. I mean, you know, something we'll never see again. You know, if we saw 100 units in a month right now, that is. Fantastic for us, and we were doing that each and every week. well wow. I mean, it was just we talk about so
0: you were working round the clock seven days a week, non
1: non stop. Go in the office at four.
0: Oh, my go goodness!
1: Six to have oh, my god, with my family have dinner from <laughs> six nuts. to eight, and then go back to the office till 11, rinse and repeat. Uh,
0: and that's just to manage the, the whole, everything that's, that's going just on. to
1: manage it, manage the people, manage the process, the backlog. I mean, it's really just an extraordinary time period. And, you know, today the multifamily market is 90% rental, 10% condo. You know, in 'oh five, it was about a 50-50, um, a, a number we never, ever approached subsequent to
0: that. I mean, it was just an incredible time. Well, uh, and then, oh, you know. Well, the drivers of that was the crazy financing structures that were made, being done on Wall Street. Yeah. Totally. Just because the liquidity was beyond belief at that point.
1: And, I, and I, I'll never forget, it was June 12, 2006. I, we had a launch of a job in Merrifield, 258 units. We sold the job out in six weeks. Hmm. At record-setting numbers. Who was and your client no on that? Uber,
0: Unibus. Oh yeah, sure.
1: Norman poses. Yeah, like, right. might call you. So, I get in. The, I get in a cab because obviously there's no Ubers, right? After the launch of that, getting you know cab back home, and I start the cabbies like really talking. Wants to talk about what doing, and mm-hmm. by the by. Yeah, you know, he says, what do you do? I said, I am a real estate company. Oh, what's it called? Williams Bower He says, I own seven of your properties. I said, excuse me? He goes, I own seven. I said, you own them? He goes, no, I have contracts for seven of your condominiums. I said, well, where? So he tells me all. I'm like, okay, that's great. He lets me out, I call Ross. I'm like, we're screwed. We're totally screwed. He's like, what do
0: you mean? And I tell him the story. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. And, you know, we got. It. So that was the first inclination you had that, that, the, that the S was going to hit the fan. Right? Absolutely.
1: And, and then right around that time, FHA raised the minimum FICO score. And so they were doing sub 600s we're closing people with 580s. Mm. And so they raised it, I remember they raised it to 680, I think. And in the span of one week, we had a job that was doing you know, 25 a week and it went to eight. And, you know, we had so much standing inventory. I remember we were converting, you know, Herndon, Price of 578 units that were standing, not under construction, just you know, Fairfield would build a building and they're like, conduits it, is a much better outcome. We deliver in 60 days, go. And then we just have to go zero to 60 in 60 days. Mm. So yeah, and, and you know, for me, I got very sick in the beginning of 06. Was, you know, I'm an athlete, run a bunch of marathons, I like to think I was good shape. And then one day I just have these blistering headaches where I couldn't function, couldn't even stand up. Like, wow. I do anything but lie pro. And so, you know, in the middle of all this, I'm going around the country
2: to different doctors for nine months trying to figure out what's
1: wrong with me. And so, you know, finally I've I go to Mayo Clinic, and you know, they figure out I have these CSF leaks. Your brain floats in CSF in your spinal cord, and so what happens is if you have a
0: leak, it all leaks out. Your brain swells. Ugh. It, it, and so and it causes, like... Migraine-type
1: headaches. It's unfunction, un un. You can't... You can do nothing. Yeah. And so... While the world is melting down on the business side, I'm trying to manage those six, seven, eight, where I am
0: at times nearly mm. Right? I had weeks where I couldn't go to the office. Were you married at the time? Married with three kids. How did your wife handle all that? Well, you know,
1: it's a real testament because... My wife Ann and my partner Ross are very similar people
2: in as much as they don't they don't spend a lot of time kind of ruminating on the problem at hand.
1: They're just doers. They just execute. And so, you know, during that time they were both just executing. Not spending a lot of time talking about division of labor, not spending a lot of time talking about what I was or wasn't doing just running full speed ahead and doing what needed to be done wow. and never complaining i mean you know i i had periods where you know i'd miss 15 weeks of work in a year i just could you know i'd be working at home because if i lie down it wouldn't hurt because when you stand that's when you get the pressure right and so you know i'd go to mayo every multiple spinal surgeries. I'd be oh. bedridden for a month at a time My after God. the surgeries. And so still working, right? But not up to you know, where I probably obviously could have been. And the two of them are just running this thing like there's nothing wrong. And so it, it, it's always, it's not lost on me when I look at our clients and people you work with. Most of the problems you have to keep you from being successful center around whether you have problems in your personal life with your partner or problems in your business life with your partner. If you don't have those things, you have a lot more air to try to be successful, right? And so, you know, we got through that time period because of the two of them. They just, never buckled you know nobody's in the corner crying to just
2: like execute we don't have a lot of time to talk about this you need to move forward
0: every day so how did you resolve the health issue
1: yeah i finally had a surgery i had four surgeries over those three years and finally the last one resolved so it's put to bed yeah put to bed thank god yeah yeah but a very scary three years wasn't going to be able to keep working I have three I have four daughters Time had well then four three and then four young girls and it was just yeah it was pretty scary time and the world is blowing up and and our business is teetering melting down teetering right and so it's just like
0: a lot piled up like very so 08 impressive. you got that solved right Yep. and then and 08, so how did you deal with the market at that point then
1: you know it was when I got it resolved nothing felt as hard as that oh yeah and so it's all about perspective yeah and so yeah. Just, as bad as it was like I just didn't sweat it like I would have. I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. so <laughs> appreciative, right? Yeah. And so you like to think you can keep that feeling forever. It doesn't always last. <laughs> I'm not saying I, I needed anything to happen, but, you know, there's a moment in time where that really stays with you. And so, you know, we got to the middle to end of 08 when it was time to sort of execute on everything. And it just wasn't as pressed about it. I was just a little bit more sanguine and I'm going to do the very best I can. We're going to execute. And there are things I can
0: control and things I can't. Uh, So your life changed.
1: Yeah, totally. 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 I'd like to think I had a little bit better perspective. And so, you know, I never had to fire anyone. Right? I mean, we were always 96 to 07 all in growth mode, right? right? Always grow, grow, grow. Right. You know, two to 226. Now, you know, I got I got a fire. I got to let go of you know, dozens of people. And so that was a really new experience. But you know what? Our approach was we went to people and said, listen, you're going to have to get rid of But it's easier to get a job when you have a job. So instead of just coming in and telling you're done, we're going to tell you 90 days ahead of Mm time. And if you come and say you need another month, we'll figure it out. Hopefully you don't use this against us. Hopefully we can all do the right thing, but we want you to be successful somewhere else. We just don't have the capacity to keep you. And so yeah, I'm really proud of that because... You know, they're not fun conversations, but so I, I think from, people appreciated that we yeah. were
0: trying to do the right thing. You, you went from 256 different. to how many then at that point? I mean, we halved you know, 110. 110.
1: Yeah, probably half. Now, listen, we had a lot of business to work through. I mean, the bad part of 08 was everything we talked about. You know, the good part is there was a lot of product to sell. Mm-hmm. And we spent from 08 to probably 14 working our way through all that product. And then we were in other markets. You know, we had an office in South Florida. So, you know, it became a ton of workout, a ton of workout for institutions for those guys
0: that were buying out first. So your clients Capital. went from developers to institutional investors or owners. And a lot lenders. of them were institutions that have been backing our current deals, right?
1: So right. they just came to us and said, we have another job over here, you're on it, you gotta help us get out of this, we'll figure it out. And so, you know, we actually grew our market share in a way- It's interesting, yeah. You know, we didn't grow our business, but we grew our market share, which again is back to what can you control, right? I can't make
2: the market sell more than it no. should, but I can control
1: what percentage of the market I had. And, and that's really when the good sales people and the sales first focus benefited us the most, right? Because people knew we had
0: the best people and you needed the best people. How creative do you have to be in down times? What, what, what do you look to do when it's difficult like that, when it's, you know, other than when it's easy, I mean, it's easy to take orders. So how do you, you know, come up with strategies to be creative, to, to get product out the door, basically?
1: You know, a lot of different ways that, you know, being in other markets helped us because things were happening in South Florida that maybe a little different than we right. weren't doing here, right? right? And so there, we had a lot of standing product, and we built these experience packages, right? So we said, come down, come over wherever you are, you're in market, come spend the weekend with us, uh, right? And so we'd fully furnish three models, soup go. to nuts,
2: food, yep.
1: yeah, groceries, cutlery, everything, fresh flour. It's like the timeshare business. Yeah. And, so, yeah, and so once we had a qualified right. consumer, we'd bring them in, have them spend the weekend. we send them to restaurants they could use the amenities mm-hmm. steal the lifestyle right so you had to do things that were a little bit different that would stand out for people and then we could bring some of that here that definitely wasn't being done mm-hmm. right and so it was just sort of back to the Al Neely give me a new idea every week or you're fired Right? I mean, that was kind of yourself. times a flat circle. It's like we went right back to, you know, 96 and like, what do you, what have you done today mm-hmm. that is going to help get us out of this? And then we ended up doing, you know, a lot of fractured deals where we would lease up, you know, an investor would buy the unsold units, we'd lease up, up for them right so we ended up in some different business lines that we originally weren't in so you hybridized your company yeah just born out of necessity right Mm a little bit of management some people that bought product and said we want you to lease it but then we want you to manage it it's like Mm -hmm. well we don't know how to
0: do that we've done it like no we trust you you'll figure it out um that kind of goes into my next question the luxury upscale condominium and townhouse sales markets are an interesting submarket to understand. How do you see the correlation among single family sales and rentals and multifamily rentals looking at a continuum of activity? What are the indicators you, you follow to anticipate the opportunities ahead?
1: So, for us, I'd say it's a barbell effect, right? And so, at the one end, you have first time buyers what I would call sort of the mid-market, not super luxury, and those consumers are generally renters that we're converting into home buyers. Mm -hmm. And so we spend a lot of time looking at rents and occupancy in the sub-market, converting that to a payment, looking at what that means, what the viability is, Mm -hmm. but then also geographically, looking at markets to say to our developers okay enough is here now on the for rent side we've created a market not we but the market has been created and now you can execute on a condominium right so you know Mount Vernon Triangle add water 5,000 units now you can do three or four or five condominiums Noma add water three or 4,000 units now you can do condominium ballpark very similar and so the development really the condominium market generally follows rental follows the high density rental product and you feel like you can build a market out of that and generally in dc 60 percent of our buyers come from within the same zip code in rental Mm -hmm. so it leads to that then you have the other side of the barbell, which is the larger luxury product that is geared toward perhaps uh, an empty nester or a move down buyer. Mm-hmm. And so then you're really less concerned with the rental market, you're really more concerned with the in-place single-family market and trying to figure out if you're selling a $2 million house. What does that translate into what you will pay, not on a per square foot basis, but just on an aggregate basis, what will you pay for a right? Mm-hmm. Is it 80% of your home sale? Is it 100, is it 110? And so, and then how big is that market? How robust is the turnover? What does that mean in terms of being successful for that kind of product? So that's how we, I would say we kind of bifurcate
0: the two. Mm -hmm. There's a little crossover in the middle, of course. Mm -hmm. Your firm, while best known for condo and townhouse sales, is diversified into single-family sales and helping multifamily developers with their marketing strategies. Perhaps explain some of the examples of services that uh, McMillian's Ballard offers other than traditional sales. So I think it's back to what we talked about early
1: on. It's really a suite. I mean, the sales are obviously the most consequential. Right. But... We looked at our average length of a job above 70 units. It's about five years shift to Stern, right? Because we're a year or two in planning, two years of construction and sales, and sometimes another year. Maybe it's 150 units, not 70. But my point is we're in these jobs for a long period of time. And so you really have to... Back to our buckets, you need to have enough going in your planning bucket, enough going in your sales bucket, and enough going in your settlement bucket so that you sort of level out the lumpiness. And so it's a heavy emphasis on the softer surfaces, you know, plan design. Everyone in this office, we get a set of plans and we pour over them. Room dimensions, you know, bathroom layouts, kitchen layouts, the things that maybe a a general broker is not gonna do, right? There's nothing wrong with that business, but they're generally listing and selling and end to end, it could be 90 days, right? 120 days. We're in this for a longer term, so there's a lot more services. And then we've gotten more into, especially in the smaller communities, doing some of the marketing ourselves, built out a team here internally to do that websites, collateral,
0: things of that nature, mm-hmm. just to try to have a little bit of a, a tighter. Uh, so you don't do much reseal? We, don't. we
1: have a number of people and, and we, we still do over a hundred million. So it's not nothing. I mean, that's a lot. It's probably, we're probably 90%. New.
0: Developer? Yeah.
1: Okay. And the two feed each other, right? right? Sure. Because we'll finish a job and we'll still have people coming to us saying, I want to buy something. And so, you know, there is a symbiotic relationship. Um, but what's nice about what we do, especially for developers, is we're a neutral party, right? We're here for work for them to make the transaction work. And we're not necessarily taking a consumer down
2: the
0: street to something else. So let's, let's walk through a case study. So let's say I'm a developer of 150, I've got, 100, yeah. I got a site for 150 units. How early do I come to you In you know, let's say I have a land contract of site sure. under control for 150 unit job. It, let's say it's in two buildings and they're adjacent to each other, yeah. let's say, something like that. I don't know how many, how, how tall they could be. Depends on the footprint, I assume. But, you know, let's just say I've engaged an architect and I've, uh, you know, I'm in the process of the, the entitlement, trying to get the site approved, et cetera. When would you come into that, into that mix?
1: Most typically, we're involved before that, you know. They're
0: During coming, the land contract yeah, base?
1: So they're coming to us, they're saying, there's a site available, it's either marketed or not. Give us a mix and pricing. Here's, here's gross and net, give us a mix, what you would build, how much parking, pricing, you know, give us a range of outcomes, and we're going to use that as the basis for our offer. And we may tweak it back and forth two or three times before it even gets to contract.
0: Now, do you even get involved in land sales, too, so or we not? Don't.
1: We that
0: don't. That you don't we do?
1: That we don't. We like to stick to our our bidding. Okay. we were certainly involved in and around that but that's not but you'll
0: let's just say they come in they got it and you'll say wait a minute you can do better than that (laughs) on the land on the land absolutely yeah for sure and so so you have to know the market you have to know the market
1: you've got to know what a door is going for you've got to understand the general sense of construction pricing and you know especially not to get off topic but you talk about these office conversions i mean i can tell you pretty clearly when somebody calls and say, I have an office conversion, okay, where is it? Tell me what you're in for, and I can tell you before we spend any more time whether it's viable
2: or not, right? Because if you're in X jurisdiction at 300
1: a foot, it doesn't work. If you're in Y jurisdiction at four, it could. So you just really have to kind of have that sense right away. Mm -hmm. But so then, you know, they're under contract, and then we're working with them and the architect,
0: all the way through the process. So how, what's mix. your relationship with them at that time? Let's assume, are you, you're, let's say you're engaged. Yeah, we're typically signed up to do the
1: whole thing, but then we're, you know, a mix of upfront fees and then, the, but the ultimate is the seller, right? Of course. You're not getting, you're not generally getting rich on no. the fees, but you're doing it so that you're, you know, there's a medium in mind so you're getting some compensation because it can be, as I said, you know, two, three years. I mean, we've had jobs eight years, not because of the slow sales,
0: just because it's the entitlement you know, it can take longer. Do you participate in the entitlement process as well? We don't accept that we, you know, we look a lot at
1: facades and, and design and sort of understand what the jurisdiction may be looking for, but we try to be an augmentation. We're not architects. We we try to give our opinion that is really market-based. Here's what we think the consumer will want. Here's how many one bedrooms we should build. These are the dimensions that work for bedrooms and kitchens and living rooms. And and really try, I, I always say we want to get it. So in an ideal world, we're building that last square foot before you get a declining marginal price on the next square foot. You know 650s works let's not make 700 where those 50 start to diminish Mm -hmm. so and we're very active in that process Uh, just because you don't tell any of our developers you want us to not have any excuses when we go sell right you don't want me coming and saying well they should have been smaller we were there we should have had this cabin you were there Mm -hmm. you know we're missing a pool, you were there, you said, don't build a pool, right? So in a way, if we're doing our job right, we're trying to take away the excuses and have a successful project. Because mm-hmm. there's always headwinds, right? There's always external headwinds, that we right. don't know, rates, the market, what have you. And so, you know, dialing in that front end really makes a difference. And listen, in the early parts of 2000, there's so much conversion, you
0: know, you don't have that value add because it was built. Right? When does, typically on a job like that, when does pre-marketing start for the, the world? Depending on the job, we're probably a year to a year and a half. Before delivery? Before
1: delivery, yeah. It depends on the market and it depends on the size of the project and what our pre-marketing efforts look like, you know? We have an office in DC, we have a a big office in DC that has different showrooms, and so we'll sell a job out of there, we'll convert it to an office or build a kitchen, but then some jobs we'll build an entire model unit, right? And so people can walk through an entire home 18 months before delivery because we want to secure a certain number of pre-sales. So it really just depends on the size and what our goals
0: are, how much you want to try to get in the pre-sale. Do you target, uh, a developer will come to you and say, so this is what our lender is telling us we can do as far as releases and all those good things. So we need to have this pace or we can't keep yep. up with the, <laughs> with the debt Absolutely. disbursement activity. Yeah. yeah. And I would say right now it's,
1: you know, not, the, the market, the financing market may not be easy, but when you're doing a deal, they're structured where the pace is achievable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I remember in 05, we had a job where we were doing 13 a month, which is a lot, okay?
2: And they're like, yeah, we're just, we're underwater. This thing is going to consume itself. You know, we really need to be at 20 a month. yeah
1: And so, you know, different times, different places, <laughs> but you know, today we're really trying to match that pre sale time period with where the goal is after the. We're trying to be a third sole.
0: So, lenders rely on what you do and how you we do spend it. spend a lot of time
1: with the, with the banks, you know, working through what right. we, we can do, what we say we can do. And so, you know, it's probably one of the biggest components is. I'm sure I've listened to a lot of podcasts that you've done, you know, reputation matters. Oh, it's really your only currency. And so, you know, especially in our business, there's a tendency for yes, right? And so you really want to say yes to anything. Sure, you can get 50 more a foot. Sure, we can do you know twice the pace. But if you if you don't have a long-term outlook. there's a high incentive to say yes, a large incentive to say yes. And so you really have to be disciplined to make sure that you you don't end up in that trap. But it's also what, you know, I think helped us gain market share in those tough times. Mm -hmm. And, you know, gives us credibility with the banks Mm -hmm. that we're not gonna say we can do something now look, it doesn't mean we come together with a developer and say we want to push the market. Like nobody yeah. gets, you don't get to the next level without doing something that no one else has done. That's how our business works. Sure, that's how develop. If you're not optimistic, you shouldn't be a developer. No. So it doesn't mean we're not pushing and trying. Of course. But we genuinely try to balance that with some sense of this is what we think we can do. And you know, again, I'm 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 proud of that
0: just because it's what keeps you in the game absolutely right?
1: because if you burn it's a small it's a big town but it's a it's a small world <sighs> oh everybody yeah Everybody knows everybody and, and you know you 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 blow it a couple of times and that's all you need
0: yep so we met we met each other recently helping our mutual friend client michael broder with his proprietary predictive analytics software, Rockerbox. I encourage listeners to watch our presentation, which I've linked to our show notes here. Other than their tool, what other analytical tools do you use in assisting your clients with sales and marketing of their units and homes? And how have those tools changed in your 30 years of home sales?
1: Sure, so about 20 years ago, we built custom CRM that runs all of our inventory management on the back end for uh, pricing and availability. And it also has an outward function to deal with all the consumer parts
0: of our business. And tracking and converting. How did you sales. come up with that? Is that a
1: custom product? It, or was, it was a custom product and we spent a, a lot of money a lot of time, and you know, we had a need for it because, again, you go back. How do you how do you consume fifty two hundred units in a year? How do you
0: manage price yes. changes that were happening on a daily basis? You know, you're like a stock brokerage and we, firm.
1: And we we had we had eighty eight active jobs that we were selling, and they weren't small jobs; they were all big jobs, and so you know, we just. There it's was like trading no, stocks there almost. There's just no <laughs> way to do it without building a custom product. Yeah. Because everyone we went to that was off the shelf, it's like, well, we can right. do right. half of what you want to do. So we, we built it. We've maintained it. It's been a key, you know, a key component, I think, to, to managing the, the sales process. Probably the most consequential change is about seven years ago, we added a BI product on top of it. And so a whole data visualization suite. Uh, And that was a really big game changer because before we were running each individual community on its own and you could see what you were doing there and what the visualization lets us do is aggregate all the data. (laughs) So you really have a better understanding of conversion rates you know, the leads that come in, how many of them do you convert to appointments to meet with consumers, how many of them end up buying, what are the trends jurisdictionally, are you selling more one bedrooms than twos, mm-hmm. what works at a better pace, what product is most valuable, so you're trying to build that. So when we go and start a project, we look at the in-place market. To figure out what is working in our own, you know, in our own communities, what has worked in the recent past, so that it's a lot less gut, so that we can back up what we're what we're offering and what we're recommending with, with real data. And then when it's time to market, we look at all the marketing dollars we've spent in a submarket and we know exactly what works, right? And we say it's like, in DC, 70% of the home buyers are coming from the in place or adjacent zip. So, why would we be in
0: Hemispheres Magazine with on a plane to Chicago? Yeah, so, you know where to now. aim. You know yeah, where to so aim. It's, it's
1: less of a shotgun approach, right. it's more surgical in that way. Right. right. And so, that's really been a, a great enhancement to our offering. Mm-hmm. It, it's made us better outward facing, but it's also made us better as a as a firm and we've had real bought you know real buy-in
0: great. so talk a bit about the residential market overall in DC economic growth continues to be strong in Northern Virginia while lagging in DC and Maryland a bit due to regulations and government restrictions not to mention attitudes towards new development how do you see demand being met going forward in in a high cost and higher interest rate market?
1: So I think there's really there's two things. There's the interest rate market and then what's happening jurisdictionally. Right. And so it's kind of a confluence of those two things. About a year ago we were doing really well. Rates doubled. The market more than halved really overnight. And so You know, for us, I think it's about getting to some stability. It's the gyrations that really unnerve people. And
2: we took a look at our traffic and sales at a one-month lag to the,
1: you know, University of Michigan Michigan Consumer Confidence Index, and it's like a 91% correlation. I mean, it's just highly correlated... To consumer confidence and so rates are clearly important right there's an affordability issue but it's at least half like a confidence and so you know this year has been better much better because I think we've had a little bit of decline in rates feels like there's a little bit more stability people's confidence levels are, seem to be higher and so we're outperforming our expectations this year. Which really is good, good. But you know, you gotta always be on guard because it, it changes quickly. So that's sort of one aspect. And look, the market will figure it out. There's plenty of products available. If you want to buy, you can buy. Right? You can do a two-one buy down to go from six and a half to four and a half. You know, there's short-term products. You know, there's a way to get something to work. Mm-hmm. All things being equal. Listen, there's a certain component they can't afford anymore. But, you know, we're tracking back to rental rates. You know, rates are pushing. People are getting, in some places, you know, 7 8%, 10 11% year over year growth. And so at some point, we will get back into that equilibrium as it relates to rent versus buy, right? But on... Um, the, the higher end move down, rates are less consequential. Right, because
0: people pay all yeah, cash. Yeah, and, and,
1: and look, if your order, op, order of operations is changing your lifestyle, that sits above where the rates are at any given moment. If it's time to make a move, it's time to make a move. So, you know, then you get into jurisdictions. And so, what's really been tough is, is DC. It's been tough sledding, kind of post pandemic. Uh, People, you know, a lot of people don't feel safe uh, with what's happening. And so, you know, that's a real shame. It's it's a real shame. It's a shame because I I worry about undoing some of the, you know, two decade run prosperity that has occurred. And it's a big component of our business so we want the need, D.C., to perform. Is it getting government not going back? Yeah. You know, look, everyone has their opinion about that. But but structurally, I, I don't know how you get back to any semblance of where we were without that. Whether you agree with the notion of going back or not, the reality is I don't think you get anywhere close to where
0: we were without it. You just don't. Well, the, the whole purpose of the city of Washington D.C. is the federal government's location, right? Yeah, I mean that was why it was built in the first place, and that was built for people to be there. Now, certainly, congressmen are there, but they have an infrastructure that's been built, and that's what the city's been built around now for you know two hundred years or so. And it's you're not pivoting that
1: in two years. No, not. no, you're pivoting it, and it's measured in decades, not. Months or years. Right. So we're gonna have to figure that out if we're going. No, DC's not dead. We're still selling in DC. You know, there are there is still success to be had, but at scale, it's going to be hard without some of those things changing. And and so what is happening is you're seeing, you know, Virginia and Maryland and primarily Virginia be the direct beneficiary of that. Mm-hmm. People leaving D.C., going to
0: Arlington, people leaving D.C. and going to Alexandria, going to some of the more suburban, urban nodes,
1: right, rest in town center, things of that nature. So, you know, is that durable? How long does it last? I mean, it certainly lasted longer than I think we thought it would post-pandemic. But, you know, for, for everything to really work and have a fully functional for sale multifamily market, you know, we need D.C. to be
0: healthy. I was going to get into this later, but I'll bring it up now. The office market is going through a challenging time, primarily because people are working remotely from their homes and on the road. How has the residential market been impacted by the pandemic and its aftermath? are amenities and home offices now more important? How has this affected new construction, budgeting, and layouts of projects? And especially in, the, in, the, in reference to the DC market sure. per se, and I didn't get into this, but the, you talked earlier on, or maybe it was before our conversation about conversion
2: yep.
0: of office product into residential, and you're evaluating that. Evaluating it and doing it. I mean, you know, we're sitting here in Old Town right now.
1: I have five uh, active office or hotel conversions going on. All in the so, district? No, five here in Old Town. In Old Town? Just in Old Town, absolutely. And so it is a, it's probably the most robust submarket for office conversions. Really? Yeah, in, in, in the entire market. And so, which is great because we're converting product, you're, you know, you're shrinking. The vacancy in office which you know hopefully slowly gets you to a better place and you're providing product that gets on the ground twice as fast right because you're doing an office conversion 12 to 14 months not 24 months for ground up are so
0: these people can see it and feel it much more quickly now old town alexandria is known for having mostly brick type mm-hmm. buildings yep not Big concrete structures, so obviously the challenges are different when you're converting brick structures into into residential as opposed to concrete buildings. Right. And,
1: and the biggest, really, the biggest outcome when we look at uh, conversion is depth. Yes. Right? How deep is right. the floor plate? And as you know, office doesn't necessarily lend itself. And you also have to be in in, in a place where it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like you know in. In DC, we've done a number West End, twenty five hundred one. You know, West End projects where you, you know, that's where people want to be. You know, I have a real question about how many people want to live in the CBD in an office room. because all the things you want from your neighborhood aren't necessarily right there, right? Because it's the office. It's a central business district. There is not a lot of services.
0: That needs to change, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, and
1: so again, it just doesn't change overnight. No, so, it's going to take time. And the size of buildings, for our conversions, we're probably sub-120 units, and a lot of those buildings really end up being 150 They have to be over 200, and that's not conducive to a condominium conversion, and so you end up with rental being the option. So, look, I think it'll help, but it feels like a little bit of a drop in the bucket for what it's coming. So, I think there is a robust and viable conversion market in outside of DC for many years. Mm-hmm. We're probably working on half a dozen others right now. So, no, our, it, our, it changes what you can do. So you have to be much more yeah. creative and we're having
0: to really stretch our thinking about design and floor plans and what works. And does it make a difference whether it's a rental or for sale? I mean, that much? Or? It does. I think it does. Yeah, because I just think Consumers,
1: if you're paying $800 a foot, you're really looking at, you know, if you have a deep floor plate and you look at, you know, a 1,000 feet, 40% of it's buried without light, you have to really start to ask some hard questions. Right. So a lot of attention is paid to getting that
0: mix right. Have you seen some innovations in that space such that I mean, I've seen office buildings where they carve out cores, yep. in essence. So, in essence, you have a window line inside the building. Yep. That conversion would be much simpler, I would think, than a, you know, a traditional rectangular building that has no courtyard or anything like that in the middle, right?
1: Yeah, we've been, you know, we've been toying with, we do a lot of transoms to get light back. We've done a few of those uh, prismatic light wells that mm-hmm. come back to get, get you light. You know, some natural light back in the space, but then we're really paying attention to just how we, how we divide the space to make sure we again back to that marginal decline and revenue. Mm-hmm. To where do we right. Get to that point so that and just a livability for consumers to feel mm-hmm. like I can live here. But look, there are a lot of advantages if you're taking the facade off, you can do an all glass
0: facade. Right you don't get that as much in Mm -hmm. our market
1: because you just don't have that high a glass ratio. Mm -hmm. So that can be really beneficial. You get some heights you wouldn't get. We're doing a job here in Old Town. You could never build back 13 stories, great views of the water. You could never build back to that height. And so, you you do get some things you wouldn't
0: get in traditional uh, development. So one example in Alexandria that I took my community to is a project that Low Enterprises did. Yes. Park. Called Park and Ford. Beautiful. Were you involved at all in that? That's
1: all rental. It's all rental. We weren't, but I think they did a fantastic job.
0: Yeah. I mean, those were two 70s vintage, yep, you know, rectangular office buildings that were GSA leased. Those leases went off and they took a long time to renovate because they had some. Issues during the construction, there, unfortunately. Yeah. Fire and a few other things. But it's a beautiful project, and, and they have more amenity space I've, that I've seen in many projects.
1: It's we can do some really innovative things where we have enough, you know, where we have space, and you say to yourself, like, okay, is this really quality for sale? No. What can we do in here? I mean, look, you know, and it could be things that just sound trite, like storage. You can't imagine how much demand there is for storage, right? So how do we do conditioned storage in places that would not be acceptable in a for-sale standpoint? Do you do storage that's connected to the home Mm -hmm. in the deepest part of the core, you know, an emphasis on on pets? I mean, obviously, in the for-rent market at scale, you've got all of this stuff. But in the for-sale, you don't see some of these things quite as
2: often. So, you know, pets, buys... Right. Things that you
1: maybe wouldn't see in a hundred units.
0: You'd rather put the space in units as opposed to yeah. amenities, right? Yeah, I would think so. So perhaps some of your discuss some of your recent sales successes and perhaps a failure or two and reasons why they either over or underperformed your, yours and your clients' expectations. What lessons did you, did you learn? It's a Good question.
1: I mean, one of the things we're really excited about right now is we just delivered the Ritz-Carlton residences in Chevy Chase. Yes. For Yeah, in Chevy Chase. I've, I've toured them. Yeah, really fantastic. First community in this market that is branded residence without a hotel attached. And so it's been a great success. We're two thirds sold. We just recently delivered the community. So that's a really great market success. And the numbers
0: have been successful. The numbers have
1: been very strong. Strong. And just a great client that,
0: that we get to of work course. on a day-to-day basis. Tell us so, that Tom lives there.
2: <laughs> it's, you know,
1: it's been a very rewarding process. Right. Just because, you know, they obviously know how to do everything at scale, mm-hmm. right? Best in class. And yeah. so it's been
0: been a lot of fun yeah when I interviewed Julie Smith and actually took a picture there at that site with her she said that this was a real learning process for us as as good as Blatudo is in marketing and they're one of the best in multifamily in the country I Great. think they learned a lot about the, the Ritz-Carlton process in their whole marketing strategy Absolutely. on a hospitality standpoint it's yes it's unique it's
1: it's very unique and there are certainly learning curves but there's a lot of, uh, you know, high outcome out opportunities as well.
0: What did you it's, learn on that process? You know,
1: it's just, that, the brand really matters. Yeah, People really trust the brand and the brand delivers. I mean, I, you know, if you go there today, what they're doing from the management, on-site process is second to none in the market, how they execute. And so they really have delivered on the promise and, and listen, that doesn't you know, in our space it doesn't always happen. You know, as much as we all try, you know, you certainly have outcomes where you don't deliver.
0: Exactly It'd be interesting to see if you put a four seasons project next right next door to a, yeah, how, to how, a Ritz Carlton you know, project. Know, how, how would, it, how it, would it, they compare? Yeah. Right. And it's
1: interesting because, you know, not to get too far down the, the rabbit hole, but there are people that are really motivated by by the brand but there are also people that find it as a store of value right and Mm -hmm. so sure come to it in different ways for different reasons Mm -hmm. but the ultimate part of it has been you know it's been a success and so we're now working on a another one in Reston Town Center with Comstock another branded residence oh that's great JW so that'll be really exciting Interesting. So I think it's going to be a product that you will see more of mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. That hospitality aspect weaving its way through the for sale space.
0: It's interesting. I looked at a project. I interviewed Donna Schaefer at Cityline Properties, and she just sold. They sold a site of their in Tyson's Corner to a company called Mather, which is out of yes, out of uh, Evanston, what Illinois. And it's quite a, you know, it's a continuous care type structure, but they actually build healthcare into the, into the, to the sales process. So it's more than just owning a home. Yeah. It's, it's a whole lifestyle thing.
1: I'm very impressed with their marketing and how they've executed. You know, it's, it's
0: really interesting. And then I also, the merit headquarters was sold to another company that another in the seniors space that's. In the marketing now, I just saw some ads for it. And I don't know if they're a rental. I didn't even look at whether it's a rental or for sale project. It's it's
1: rental. I think it's an entry fee. It is. And rental. Uh I
0: believe. Er Erickson, I think, is the name of the company. That's right.
1: Yeah. Nothing really for
0: sale. Have you done senior projects before? We have.
1: We have. We've done age restricted, 55 and over. Right. Getting ready to open another one in Annapolis here shortly but have also done continuous care. Down, interesting. Downtown. Is that a different marketing
0: strategy? Totally
1: different because the reality is you're marketing to the adult children of your-
0: Oh, well, that's interesting.
1: Huh. Right. And so certainly you're marketing to the person or the couple, they have to want to live there. Right. But, but in almost every circumstance, you have to then prove out the position to the adult children, and so it's an extended sales process. It's
2: very different than just a standard condominium.
0: Well, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. Hmm. So. But, oh yeah, so now failures. You know, failures. So I think, look, you know, for us, whenever we lose a job, and it's not often, fortunately. But, but it happens. You have to kind of go back and kind of have a tell the truth, sit down when we talk about the job, try to take
0: what did emotion you learn? out of it. Yeah,
1: take emotion out of it and, and sort of break it into two pieces, right? Externalities and, and you know, and internal. And so what externalities happened that led us to this moment that we really couldn't control, rates the construction issues, the market, whatever it is, mm-hmm. you know, acknowledge those. And then what could we have done internally better so that we didn't get to this moment? And so, you know, you try to try to do that and be honest with yourself. You, you know, ideally don't make those mistakes again. Um, and then the other part is, I would say, You know, one that's recent is about five years ago, we had a long time client who we worked with for a decade, had never used anyone but us, had a job, big job came to us and said, you know, we need you to price this. And So we priced it and they said, look, you know, we have someone else telling telling us better numbers. Mm -hmm. And again, back to the whole, you know, Mm -hmm. circling back to what we talked about earlier, Incentive to say yes is very strong, right? Because look, I can get to the end and just you can act like you're a meteorologist. Well, you know, <laughs> we thought it was going to rain, it didn't. You know, we thought it wasn't going to rain, it did. And and then look, now you could just roll anything you want up on COVID. Well, COVID, right? And that's sort of a catch. <laughs> and, yeah. and so, you know, we said like, we don't like this site we don't think this is a good for sale site. We do not think it's going to be successful. And they said, we hear you. These other guys are giving us better numbers and the bank is going to finance at those numbers. And we're going to have to just go forward without it. And so it was really, really tough because you have a long-time client, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: a relationship, those things don't come around at all. So we had to watch the whole process unfold. And you know, ultimately, it failed as a condominium. Now, listen, they're going to be fine. They'll rent the job, cap it, and sell it, and they do very well. So, no one's no one's losing money, but probably do really well. So, there's not there's sort of a happy ending in that regard. But we had to really watched that process, and you know, all of these things we talk about sound really easy to just say. But when you have to put them into practice and there are
0: real consequences to sticking to your guns, it's painful, right? So did your client call you back after he's... He, uh, to his credit, he did. Say, you know, you were right, Chris. He
1: called and said, you know what? You were right. And so that was a great call to get just because it reinforces for you yeah. and for your team. Right. Because look, the team is like, you know, we're in this to do business, and, yeah. and we're, you know, we're, what's the line of being aggressive and trying to reach new places in the market, right? Versus saying, I know this is not going to work, and I have to be.
0: I don't want to get on a on a, on a diving plane well, it's uh, not going to. Yeah,
1: well, it's not only that; it, it's again, it's back to reputation. Like I can't, yeah. I can't have right. lenders saying no. These guys gave me numbers, and they're, you know... Way out of line. One, two standard deviations away from yeah. what really happened, yeah. right? And so it was sort of one of those, like, long-term failures where it's like I had to see it every time. It's just like, ah, oh, this is unbelievable. But then it had, you know, it, 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 it worked out for them because they'll be fine, and it worked out for us because it sort of reinforced making those uh, calls and look we're not always right like certainly we've done it and you know the market has had success or somebody has taken it and it done got numbers that we thought we we didn't think so it's not like we're it's not as it's not a business of infallibility but you
0: generally have a sense after doing it for long enough what can work and what can't So discuss the composition of your team and what kind of characteristics you, you look for in sales professionals? And when were you completely wrong with assessments, either positively or negatively, and why?
1: So, you know, back to what we were talking about before, we were able to grow our team primarily with seasoned people that have been in the business for a long time and were attracted to being in a place that was sales first. Focus and where they had a voice on a constant basis, Mm -hmm. but then you know you can't build an organization with any sort of longevity that way, right?
2: Because you need to have a a mix of people, and you need to be
1: you know growing the business. And so in the early two thousands, we brought a number of people in outside of real estate; they were in other finance, other sales. And our process is really one, mentorship. Mm -hmm. So when we we have someone that we think could work, the first thing we do before we hire them is say, commit to us three weekends, right? And come and go sit on three different properties with three different people so that you can assess this is something you really want to do, right? And then we can have three more people that we trust. Give us an assessment. Give us an assessment. So it's we, we I feel really good about our assessment capabilities and back to what I said before, Ross is an incredible judge of people. Judge of people you know, and judge right. of talent. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really good to have salespeople that are doing the work every day to be able to give you that feedback.
2: And so from then it becomes a real mentorship and try to pair up
1: people that are Early on in the business with people that have a long time, right? And so it's good. It's a good mix because, you know, you can you're always learning, and then from from the people that are here that have longevity, you know, ideally you're always learning, and you've got someone coming in that hasn't been doing this. They have a different perspective on the world, different perspective on how they deal with consumers, and then they obviously get the benefit of. 10, 15, 20, 30 years of uh, on-the-ground, on-site experience
0: to be able to draw from. So you have a team structure then on your jobs? Is that it? Generally.
1: That when we have a mentorship, always, yeah. depends on the size of the property, whether it requires multiple people or not. But you know, the one thing I've learned is, it's time in the saddle, right? You don't know what to do the first time you have a situation, but you do the second. And so you almost have to see it happen once before it gets to the next time. You're like, okay, I remember what I did when the bank couldn't close a loan and I have a home buyer that has no place to put their furniture. Now I know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. So it's just it's kind of a time in the saddle. And that's how we've built our business, sort of both ends of that, meshing together. Uh, And then internally, it's, you know, we've grown a lot of people that we've worked with in prior developments, prior clients, prior marketing companies. And so when we're hiring someone, generally we know them before they come to us. We've worked with them. We've identified that there's someone that could be a great fit. And so, you know, one of the things we're really excited about is we've added to our ownership pool Over the last five years. We have three partners now with us, in addition to Ross and I. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so really trying to take a forward look at, you know, you think about business, you know, getting to one
2: day 2.0 you get past yeah. the people that start the business sure. that's the
1: hardest piece right yeah. and getting you know having an owner's mindset right like thinking like an owner every day uh, and it's
0: different I mean it was a lesson my dad taught me early on I mean
2: mm-hmm. he would
1: we'd have these Friday breakfasts where I'd go and have coffee with them every Friday especially when we are building the business and I'd come with the problem and week would pass we'd talk but we'd sit back down and say okay you asked for some feedback here it is so there are a lot of lessons that i learned that that's way. great and and one of them was just you know there's owners work and there's everything else and you need to be you know the people
0: that are in your business you have to have a mentality of thinking like an owner really taking possession of it right and that you know it's hard to do so you talked about the phases of the process. So, is the person assigned to the job right up front through the job the whole place, or is there a transition of people internally that do different things? So, for instance, up front, you have the same expertise to analyze plans and look at all that as you would in closing a sale on a on a on a deal, or do you have different people that kind of plug in to, at different times in in the process?
1: A little bit of both. So. You know, Ross or I typically involved throughout the process. Okay. And with our uh, partners and/or project management, we typically assign someone to work on it. It's either working the developer we've already worked with for fifteen years, and they have somebody in our in our shop that they work with on a daily right, basis, right, right. or it's a new client, and we'll see who a good fit would be. No typically take it beginning to end. Got it. And so consistency is a huge key for us. You know, so it's one point person at one least. One point person. Yeah. yeah. I mean our you know our agents were about 13 and a half years on average tenure for our agents internally We're about 12 years. And so consistency is a huge key. Like people want to see the same people mm-hmm. day in and day out. Feel like they have institutional knowledge right. and, and that was a lesson i learned early we'd go to these meetings with ad agencies and nothing wrong with the business but the business is a high turnover business so we go to a meeting and then three weeks later go to the meeting like oh here's a new account manager I'm like what happened to the old account manager? well they're gone and you know early on you know ross and i sat down like what do we want to be are some core principles and one of the core principles was consistency is key longevity is key and having the same people in place assuming they're doing a good job makes a huge difference later on right and again it's always back to like thinking long term and not thinking too short term got it so that you sort of forcing yourself to make these decisions that Mm -hmm will benefit you in five years, not,
0: you know, five months. Mm-hmm. How has the real estate brokerage business changed over the years? Are you still learning? Have you ever thought about expanding into owning and or managing properties as well? You know, how has it changed?
1: Right now, we're going through a period where the, the size of the communities has gotten much smaller, right? So in 2005, our average community was probably 155 units. Today, it's probably sub 70. Mm. And so a lot of that is just, you know, cap rate driven demand for apartments. Size of deals has gotten bigger on the apartment side. And it lends itself to less to do condo just because of the, you know, two 300 units. It's hard to do condo. And so we've had to adjust to that to be a little bit more nimble and you know, you're working with uh, we're probably to do the same amount of business we probably have to work with twice as many clients as we did 10, 15 years ago, right? You could have your core clients and do you know, 1,000 or 2,000 units with five people. And today that's just not the case. And so you've had to We've had to reshape how we work to make that adjustment, and so it's fine. It's just it's a little bit different, and you're also sort of identifying at the front end, you know, who's building a 20-unit community that one day is going to be building a 200-unit, right? And try to identify those clients early on that you say, hey. I think we can have a twenty-year relationship with this group, right? If we do it right up front, put in the time, bring value, we're here for them.
2: So,
0: so that's probably has, has technology affected any? I mean, the change in technology over the years affected certainly. Our business?
1: Certainly, I mean, you know, when I when I started, we were obviously one hundred percent offline in our advertising, direct mail, and newspaper, right and now we're 99% online. And we get much better data, right? So, I mean, before you had to ask people how they found you. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, you know, we ask them how they found you and they're opening the front door with the name on the the door and they go, oh, I saw a sign. It's like, well, that's the last thing you saw. You know, what got you here? And so now we, we have a lot better information to deal with so, we can, there's a lot more accountability on the marketing side. I'd also say look, the consumer is so much more well informed than they were five, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, they know everything. Data is, is proliferated. So, you know, people come in and they know exactly what's going on. And so, it just means you have to really be, you know, you can't fake nothing. Want to, but you can't fake your way through the stuff. you really got to know your stuff, both us sure. them, and the onsite team, um, because the consumer is much more much more
0: educated, and they demand more today than they did. So, okay. what are, what are you learning now that you didn't know two years ago? Let's say what 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 what's new? What's what's hot? What's what's like? Oh my God! I didn't realize this was happening. You know and <laughs>
1: a good question.
0: I mean, I, I think
1: you know, it's interesting. You see a lot less advertising has become much more transactional than it used to be, right? You used to spend a lot more time telling stories, setting up the, the feel of the community and, and the branding. And, and so we still do all those things, but The world has gotten much more transactional. And so we always have this push-pull relationship, right? Because once you get to transactions, it's harder to to build intrinsic value to what you're doing. And so there's always that, you know, we we sit around in our, our meetings and marketing and we're looking at the communications we're putting out and I'm always the one saying like gotta make sure we're we're telling a story here we're building a brand because you know so quickly people get to the numbers and so you just gotta be careful you don't wanna you can't go crazy on the other side of branding and telling a story but there's still real value there people buy on emotion and they underpin with financials. And so if you go straight to the financials and you don't tell a story, build a brand, talk about the experience, it's hard to to create a value proposition. And so that's always a a push-pull and we're clearly in a space that is getting much, much more transaction focus, dollars and cents focus. you know, I always have this thing if you have an incentive and you put an incentive out, it's like, how do you even know you want to live here? Right? Before I tell you, we'll give you 20000 in closing costs. It's
0: meaningless.
1: If you don't, haven't figured out that you actually want to live in our building, yeah. how about you got to figure out if you want to be here first? If you want to be here, we'll figure out how to, to make it work financially, all things being equal, right? And so that's
0: where we're really trying to, you know, push against. It's interesting what you say there because, and this is where I go into the office market, I say, so why, does it, why do you need to be there? What, what's the purpose? I mean, <laughs> I asked that question. I, unless you have a reason to be there you got to, if you're an office owner, you've got to make it a place that people want to go to. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And it's the same, I think, in the residential space too. I mean, you know, unless you're comfortable going there physically, why do it, you know? You've got to have a reason to be there, right? Yeah, you know, it's interesting is we used to have this pre-pandemic joke,
1: right? Which was, you know, we'd always have these Go through planning on a community, and it's like what's well, close to their office, too. Okay, how many people want to live three minutes from their office, right? Because I, you know, I think sometimes there's a tendency to think that that's mm-hmm. what everyone and it depends on where you are. If you're the CEO, you probably do, mm-hmm. right? Right, if you're not, I'm not sure that you always want to live, you want to separate right on, yeah, and you want to separate. And so, it's interesting, all that's kind of thrown out the window with, with COVID, of course. But it'll be interesting whether some of these patterns are durable or not. Do we get out of that? Do we go back to uh, you know, a separation? How important is distance to work over time? You know, how, how long can we have you know, back to office? I mean, we went back June 12th. 2020, 2020, whatever the day was. And we've never been remote since, internal. It just, it just just, because that 60-day period was really difficult for a lot of reasons. But, but not the least of which is, you know, you're on email. It's really hard to get new ones. And, and when we can sit down and collaborate, I feel like we're so much better. You can't
0: do it, it on company, Zoom. So can't you
1: can't do it on Zoom. You just you don't you don't have the nonverbal cues, you don't have the nuance, it's hard to get the creativity. And you know, I call Zoom sort of the revenge of the type B personality, mm-hmm. right? Yeah you know, I watch all these type A personalities just melt down having to be on Zoom. Yeah. Because you know, you can't if you're that's your your thing, that's how you operate. It's hard to to get excited on Zoom. And if you're a type B person, it's perfect for you. And there's no right or wrong. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but it is funny to to watch people and and personalities. Um, But look, there's been some good parts. I mean, you know, a lot more efficiency in meetings. We can do more than we used to be able to do. But for us, we just feel like we have to be together to really make
0: it work. So, what about ownership? What about doing your own deals? Why, why not? Why couldn't you? You know, a lot of firms have the, kind of the, all the above kind of thought yep. process. So, yeah,
1: uh, you know, I think for us, we certainly invested in, in some of our... As an LP. Yeah. Some of our projects, mm-hmm. but... You know, I learned some early lessons in our business, and one of the lessons I learned was clients don't take kindly to feeling like they're competing with you. Mm -hmm. And listen, look, you can make an argument if I just done five deals, everything's different, right? Because, you know, in a spectrum of continuum of 30 years, just about everything has worked that reason. Mm -hmm. But it's really hard to make sure that your clients don't feel like you're out there competing for deals, people, for consumers. And so it's just been a thing that we've always said Mm -hmm. we're not going to do. We're really going to
2: make the brokerage business our business. What
1: about you personally? We have, yeah, we certainly have, have, you know, from time to time, built a little small portfolio, you know, kind of bought and sold, done a little bit of that, but but not too much, not too much. Again, you could argue I probably should have done more, but you know, I'm also not done yet of twenty years. Well, you're running a business, yeah, you're running a business, and I mean, look, we we do have, I think we do have some really interesting transparency. Into markets, some markets what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so you know, there's times we you, you know, try to use that. If you're buying rental, small rental
0: deals, and
1: we've certainly done that. Times past.
0: Time. Yeah, so you're buying things that are not competing with your regular That's business. Right. That's right. Yeah. You can buy an office building, for instance, or something like that. You wouldn't do yeah, that. Yeah. But you do, might. But it could. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly. completely out of what you're doing,
1: yeah. And I'd also say, I mean, one of the lessons I've learned is most knock on wood every real estate deal I've invested in by and large has done well. And every time I've done something else, <laughs> it's been <laughs> tougher. Not that they some of them haven't worked, but you know, you kind of have to go with what you know, and sure, a lot more transparency into mm-hmm. what's going on in real estate than I do, and you know. AI or healthcare, sure. something
0: else. So relationships are the key to our industry, as we know. Other than family and colleagues, who have influenced you the most in your career? You mentioned a few names, obviously.
1: Yeah, I mean, certainly through the years. I mean, I, look, I go back, and my dad was obviously the number one influence. Yeah, right. right. You know, stable, stable marriage, stable business partner. <laughs> I like to think that that's an outcome that I've achieved in that manner and so, you know obviously certain certainly with Ross and a number of our clients for me it's important to have a group of people that are what I like to call like out of the system right because your spouse and your business partner they're in the system with you right, right? of course like it, what what happens and doesn't happen is super consequential to them and so I, you know, I have a group of people that own their own businesses mm-hmm. friends through the yeah. years yeah. And, and you know there's a few in real estate and a lot in other spaces mm-hmm. you know, financial services politics uh, healthcare you name it and so and it's not a big group it's probably five or six people mm-hmm. so you know we communicate a lot and it's sort of a space where you get together as a group we do from time to time yep Mm -hmm. and we just do a lot of constant communication text and and just it's good to have a panel of people you can sort of bounce things off where the consequence they're not in the outcome of consequences right
0: they kind of a mastermind group for you in some respects a little bit yeah Yeah, i have one of those yeah Yeah. and
1: it and it's it wasn't a formal thing right were just went and said like Okay, I'm gonna build this group of people. It's just sort of organically right. happened. Right. And, and, and it actually happened because I've had a, a fair number of friends start businesses later in life. Like 40, later in life. You know, I was 25, they're 50, right? Sure. And so I'm always like, man, you know, could I do that today, right? And in a sense, you're always doing it, right, for our business because we're running on a product and we have to go get a new product. But, you know, your risk matrix at 25 looks totally different than 50. You know, no kid. You know, I had no kids, a wife that was working. And so, like, mm-hmm. failure is what? Like, I go back to selling, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I can always figure this out. You know, 50, it's a lot different. And mm-hmm. so that's been a really rewarding group because, you know, come from different places, different businesses, and just how they look at the world, what they see happening. It's been kind of nice to have. It's
0: great. So what are some of the biggest wins, losses, and surprising events of your career? You've mentioned a few, but any, anything else that comes to mind?
1: Yeah, you know, the losses were, we talked about losing the jobs. And right. again, like I said, it doesn't happen a lot, but, but sort of running, you know, we have a philosophy in here of like running toward problems. There you problems go. generally don't get better if you don't address them. <laughs> they generally don't flame out. They grow, metastasize, and so if we have an issue. Internally, just have a saying like, "Run to the problem. Just go right to it." You know, our client wants to know that, "Hey, we have identified a problem, but we're on top of it, mm-hmm. right?" And when you come with a problem better have a solution right you can't just come and say hey so let you know we have a problem so <laughs> like, i'm going to tell you what the next question's going to be how are <laughs> you going to solve it and so those are simple little things but you know you have to sort of always be reinforcing them uh, you know biggest wins we you know we had a, we had a as i said before we had an operation in south florida that was doing pretty well and this is kind of like probably and so things have really blown up south florida had imploded right right and so we get a call from a from a guy that we do a lot of work with that was an auctioneer and so he would come in and run these accelerated sales programs and he would work with the on-site team to do it
0: foreclosure sales no it wasn't even
1: foreclosure it was Here's a way to try to accelerate the process yeah. by finding the market clearing number. Right. What is the number that instead of going, you know, again, this is call it, you know, mid two thousands? How do we do fifteen a month, not five? How do we do? And and, and you can always lower price, of course. But, but it was sort of the reverse of what we built our business on the the event programming and, and the launch. Process. Right, 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 right. This was sort of a back end version of that clearance I'm sale. To, yeah, am going to have. A, yeah, we're going to have a long <laughs> clearance we're going to and, and we're going to yeah. let the market tell us right. where we can clear 30 units yeah. in yep. a weekend. Right. Yep. And so we have done thousand units with this guy. Great guy. And so it's like a Saturday night, and I'm in Wyoming. I'm on vacation with my family. And he calls me and says, Hey, we have this great opportunity in South Florida, Fort Myers. I said, oh, Okay. And I don't know if you remember the building that was on the Wall Street Journal. It was a building related building. It was 458 units, 457 people canceled. Oh, my One God. One guy settled. <laughs> they, have a photo, they have a photo of him standing on his balcony in these two towers the only guy. 26 unit, 26 story towers, right? And so he says, I'm in the running. They're gonna hire an auctioneer and a sales company to launch this job. You know, they've sort of bought it back, if you will, Bank of America. We're gonna kick off the job with an auction. It's all about the auction. You, you know, you'll have to do the sales, but but it, it's really auction heavy. I said, oh, okay, great. He goes, the meeting is Monday at eight it, mm-hmm. Monday at ten in Miami. And you're out in Wyoming. I'm in Wyoming. I'm like, Monday at ten. Like it, you know, it, it's <laughs> like eight o'clock on Saturday night. I mean what <laughs> I have no there's no way we can prepare anything, right? No, no, no. I have everything. They don't even, you know, care about you. They, I'm leading everything. You just have to show up. You and Ross show up. It'll be fine. I'm like, John, are you sure? Like, I'm kind of really trying to be structured. Like, I, I can't just show up. With nothing. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. It's fine. Okay. So I spent, you know, I took like three flights on Sunday to get to Miami because there's really no way to get there it took me like 18 hours to go into the meeting and you know it's related they're one of the developers you know, in the country the, it's you know the, the South Florida the Florida related you know tens thousands of condominiums right and so go into the meeting and we're at their offices and uh, you know there's, there's like a conference room with 25 people around the table and so we sit down and I've done no preparation okay because he said I mean one it was you know 18 hours there's no way I could do anything and so they come in and the the assistant says like do you need a projector and I'm like projector for what she's like for your presentation I'm like well no so John's got she goes yeah the, the we don't want to hear anything from John. We want to hear it just from you. I'm like, well, no. But she's like, no, no. Like, we're <laughs> here for you. I'm like, okay. Well, no, I I don't have a presentation that's electronic. She goes, oh, so you have a, a paper presentation? You do you have a a box you want to hand out? And I'm like, no, don't. I don't have a box that I'm going to hand out. So she walks away from me, and she goes to lean. In one of the development guys here is, you know, she's supposed to be whispering. She's like, they have no presentation. (laughs) It's loud. It's, it's everyone's in here. They have no, they have no presentation. They have nothing. And he's like, Oh, okay. Well, you know, what the hell you're here. Just, you know, humor us, talk to us. And so I'm like, I have nothing, you know, At this point, it's like, we're done. We're getting on the plane, going back. It's over. You know, John thought he was right. He was wrong. It wasn't really his fault. They told him this way. And these guys just really sales focused. And, you know, it turned into like a two hour conversation. And we ended up getting the job. So what did you say? I mean, we just sort of winged it. I mean, we just talked about what we'd done, how we were going to do it. I mean, I thought about it on the plane ride. Of course, we execute Of course, yeah. now I went right. in. Right. But I mean, it was just—it was like you need to convince me, and I'm a guy that's done thousands and thousands of units, and you need to convince me why I should hire somebody from DC and not you know five other firms from South
0: Florida that have done this. And we did. We ended up. What do you think? What do you thing. think the trigger was? What? Why did they choose you guys? I mean, what? was it that did you ever hear after the fact why yeah did? i
1: mean i think you know what i heard was they felt that there was you know genuineness right authenticity and that we you know we really cared about the outcome and it was a it was a big deal for us right we had something to prove can we go to a market that we've never done? and we look we had done this in west palm but but not 450 units that are standing, right? So can you go into a market and use all the knowledge you've accumulated and and learn the market quickly and then execute it? And so, you know, I, I think for the time we convinced them we could. But, That'd be- you know, it turned out to be a great success. We got, we got the whole thing done in under two years. And look, it was a time that was not a great time. So, mm-hmm. the whole, you know, it was very consequential, for our business. You know, when, when things aren't good, you have to look at other avenues and be creative. And so, but it was pretty funny. You know, the crazy part is they didn't end up hiring the auctioneer that brought us. They hired another guy we had never met.
0: Oh my God.
1: Oh really? yeah. I mean, the whole thing just,
0: you know, talk about thinking one thing's gonna happen. Did you do and further work other, with, with uh, Related after that? A little bit, but
1: you know, things are getting dizzier back here, and...
0: They've never been to this market.
1: No, no. And a lot of it was just also, like, you know, I have four kids. Like, how often do I want to be traveling? I was down there every week. And,
0: you know, they're great people, but they're very intense. demanding.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. We got our first...
1: We got the job. It was on Monday. We had a kickoff meeting on Friday. I get the invite and so I call the person and I say hey listen I'm so excited we can't wait to get working with you but you know, I just got this invite and I think you put the wrong time on it <laughs> it's for 10 o'clock it's for 10 o'clock at night and I think you meant to put a. 10 a.m. she's like no I didn't no, no I didn't that's when we can do it we're extraordinarily busy we'll have our kickoff on Friday night I'm like all right, that's let's a go. weekend in Miami. Let's go. So yeah. we did. It. I mean, you know, it's just funny. It's like all those things, you know, that builds you know, where you get to. Um, yeah. But no, it was a great, great experience. And, you
0: know, what was, was what was the biggest surprise in your career? Did you ever come up with anything that just kind of hit you out of left field? It's like,
1: whoa. I mean, just you know,
0: obviously for me, I'd say
1: that. Um, a abruptness of change, how fast things can change. I mean, obviously, we saw it with COVID, we saw it a year ago, we saw it in 07, 08. Just, you know, you think something one thing's going to happen and then something diametrically opposed really occurs. So, you know, again, internally, we like to we celebrate wins, but we're always looking ahead to to not take too much for granted because things change quickly. And then you also go through, you know, things like the health. And, you know, you have a picture in your mind of the way things are going to go. You just have to be
0: prepared that... Your health issue... And it's not
1: not exactly what you think it's going to be. Yeah, your health Um,
0: issue obviously hits you like a ton of bricks. Yeah,
1: it totally changes everything. How you look at things. So, you know, surprise happens more often than... When you really start to think about it, it's a yeah. lot more surprises.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. So without disclosing any secrets, share any stories about, well, we talked about one of them, your favorite, not-so-favorite experiences and any lessons you learned. I mean, any other things that you could share in that, in that realm of stories where you learned something?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of them would be around preparing for moments that you... You know, preparing in your
0: life for moments that you don't necessarily have a script for. Yeah. Right? Right.
2: You know, I have another client.
1: Let's just call it 07. I keep going back to that time period, but, you know, it's, it's so, so foundational. And, you know, we're doing call it 500 units for them. And I won't disclose the name, but, you know, the job, we've sold it all out and now we're going to face 50% losses and uh, there's a consortium of banks and so they call me and say hey listen we're going to have a we're going to have a talk with all the banks with the syndication banks i want you to come and talk about how we're going to get out of this okay great that's right you know we'll have a line it'll all be fine Everything's good. just come and you know, be ready to tell these guys how we're getting out of here. Great. So we, you know, prepare everything ready, get over there, spread for breakfast. So they get up and our, our client gets up and he puts a box on the table and there's 25 bankers. And he says, listen, We have a real problem with our loan structure and we better figure it out. But if we don't, here's a box I have for you. And in this box, 500 keys to all the condominiums. So if you don't want to work it out with us, you can take this box on your way out. But if you do, you should definitely hire Chris because he's doing a really good job. (laughs) And so we're going to let Chris take it from here. And then he just walks off and leaves. Not 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 walks off, walks off and leaves. Gone, out of the building. And I'm just left, standing there, <laughs> the box next to me of keys, like, okay, tell these guys. So you have to this. negotiate a workout? Guys, I didn't negotiate a workout. <laughs> I said, like, tell, tell them how it was going to be okay. But, I mean, talk about a setup.
2: Oh my but God. it's just like,
1: you know, you do enough preparing where you have these... Moments you're not prepared for, and, and you hope all the stuff you've done in the past, you know, lead, lead to you kind of being able to figure out. So the did deal do. get worked out? It all got worked out. We saw it all out, happy ending. Banks got paid a hundred percent, you know. But listen, that was, everybody was blowing up Fremont, Well, course, yeah. you know. I was the star yeah. chorus. They oh, were yeah. all going yeah. under, yeah, I and mean, every one of these guys but they didn't want
0: it back. Mm-hmm. I was a lender. I was a mortgage banker for 20 years plus. And one thing that, you know, you, you, re- you didn't realize as a borrower is that lenders, the worst possible outcome is for them to take a building back, a property back, because they had no idea what to do with it. And developers that knew that knew that they had actually more power than they ever thought in those discussions, you know, and... And the other lesson that we learned was, you know, if you borrow fifty million from the bank,
2: the bank owns you. Yeah. If you borrow five hundred million from the bank, you
1: own the bank. You own the bank. Yeah. And so the <laughs> irony is that before that time period, if you just lay down on a sheet, right. here are ten jobs of various sizes yeah. that failed for any reason. Show me who's gonna get blown out and who's going to be able to finish. And it would have been the inverse of what really happened, right? Mm -hmm. All of our guys with sub-50 million dollar loans got crushed, you know, got taken out, got blown out. Anybody that had, you know, hundred plus million bank worked every single too big to fail. Yeah, just worked every single deal out. Mm -hmm. Right? And so this is
0: kind of funny how that works. It is. It's interesting. So what are your life priorities among family work and giving back, Chris?
1: So as I said, I'm married 28 years and I have four daughters, 16 and 24. Mm-hmm. So I'm one in high school, two in college, and one getting ready to go back to law school in the fall. And so, you know. Everyone on the podcast will always say family is first, and, and I'm no different. I mean, it is, you know, it's the number one thing in my life. Very fortunate to have not only a great wife, but, but great kids that like to be together. That's so, great. yeah, we, you know, I kind of have this saying, like, when the six of us are together, we kind of make our own weather. We don't need a lot of external inputs. to just sort of go somewhere and do something and have a lot of fun. So, you know, I, I don't have all the answers as a parent, but I learned from my parents, and especially my dad watching him run his business and balance. Like, he was always present. Always
2: present. And you know, when he died and thought really hard about
1: you know he definitely could have been more successful he was successful but he probably could have been incrementally more successful but he had a balance in his mind that's important right his dad died when he was 15 and so i think it really stayed with him yeah. to try to make sure he was present mm-hmm. and so that's sort of been my lesson from them and from him which is i don't have all the answers most of the time we're doing this for the first time, right? When something happens, you got to make a call. It's not like it's happened six times to you, right? You just have to make a call. But I think being present has got to be more than half the battle, right? Mm -hmm. And so I really try to create that balance with them. That's great. Yeah. Tremendously rewarding. And it's just a great time period, and it's an interesting time period because for the first time in my life, I have people that work for me that are the same age just as children. my children. And so that really, you know, it causes a lot of reflection, right? Like prioritization, what you say to the people in your office that are the same age as your kids. So that's really pretty and now we're the age of when I started my business, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of
2: full circle moments happening. And kind of what you say to your kids and what you say to the people that work
0: with you and how those things. You have all daughters, good. right? All daughters. Yeah. That has to be interesting. It's
2: fantastic.
1: <laughs> I, mean, I came from a
0: family of
1: three boys. My wife had a brother, no girls. I always said I was going to have boys and you know it's been
0: not too yeah. much drama then eh
1: you know what
0: it's actually pretty good you like, fortunate it, we have a lot of fun it's, that's great it's great and I mean you know I'm, I'm down for just about anything reasonable
1: just because you know you start to value this time and it
2: mm-hmm.
1: and it's changing right they're getting older they're getting out of college and you know you just you don't have the time together all the time you used to have. No. So you really value that time. Yep. So that's definitely my priority that way. Do a lot of climbing. And so I think you had Dan Matthews on. Yes. Dan's a climber. climber Do you know Dan? I do know Dan. He's a great guy. Yeah, he is. a really, really smart guy. But similar experiences Mm -hmm. climbing, which is, you know, a really rewarding sport because it requires a lot of focus, you know. I used to run marathons, and you could go out for a fifteen-mile run and just think about work for fifteen
0: miles, right? Because you're just running. And climbing's very different. Very you're focused. Not thinking about anything,
2: you're just mm-hmm. focusing
0: on the task at hand, and it's really a good outlet for my personality. Which is, which is sort of a binary. All in or not. Have you ever it's, read like, any Jim Collins books? Uh, you know his background? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <It's
0: unbelievable. laughs> He's a climber. He's
1: an unbelievable climber. Yeah. It's just a great sport. It's given a lot, a lot to me. And, you know, I try to go around the country a couple trips a year, and it's a good time to sort of get away
0: and kind of have a little focus for this. And it's just, have you climbed here in the Potomac region? I have, yeah. Yeah, Rock and Great Falls. Right.
1: Most of what I do is out west, the Tetons.
0: Yosemite? Red
1: Rocks. Not climbed in Yosemite, <laughs> Have not, it's still on my list. The Bugaboo's in Canada,
2: mm-hmm. Rockies. There's an endless amount. I have a spreadsheet all the things I want to do that I'll never get close to Mm -hmm. achieve, you know, getting done.
1: But you just got to have a list and try to put a few of them down each year.
0: What about the community? community.
1: So I am on the board of ARHA, which is the uh, public housing authority for the city of Alexandria. I've been on it for 12 years,
0: past chair. And that's really where I put all of my energy as it relates to... Is that a volunteer position? It is.
1: It is. And it's been really, really rewarding because, you know, I came in 12 years ago and had a list of all the things I wanted to accomplish that I thought I would accomplish in the first year. And I think it took nine years to get through that list. And so we're really doing some incredible things. We've got great leadership, have a fantastic board now that's taken a long time to get to
2: the right composition of people and skill sets, and we're doing a fair amount of redevelopment
1: right now. We've just got um, Samuel Madden approved right here, which is going to be 530 apartments with affordable housing, you know, from zero to 30, all the way up to you know, 80, 100%. Uh, we're replacing, you know, the, the, the drive is to replace one-for-one housing, but we're really exceeding that on the affordable front. And really
0: putting together great places for people to live that need affordability mm-hmm. because our housing stock is old at this point, not pre-war. Is this all just in the city of Alexandria? It's all just in
1: the city, but okay. I mean, we probably have five hundred plus million dollars of development to do in wow. the next five to seven years. So there's real opportunity. This is ground-up
0: stuff then, mostly,
1: or is it rehab? Ground-up, almost all ground-up, because everything is really, you know, the stuff we're attacking is essentially. At its economic end. Got it.
0: They've reached social obsolescence. You just know, so tear it down and start yeah, over. Yeah, and a
1: lot of it is you're putting more density that can pay for the whole thing, Right. that can provide more affordable housing. We're growing our stock. At the end of all this, we'll have much more. Than we oh, start that's great. With. Yeah, and so it's something I'm really, you know, it's local.
0: Yeah. And, and
1: I'm really, really proud of where we are when I started. You know, it's state chartered, but the city appoints all the members. And so it was not a great relationship with the city. There were a lot of things happened before I got there that that was a lot of distrust. It was just not a functional relationship. And today, you know, with the, with the obviously drive from our developer partners, we got an entire community approved in one year, which is unheard of. That's impressive. But it's just a testament to having good people in leadership positions and fostering a sense of,
0: you know, fair play and and working well with the city. Are you guys involved in the, is that unit involved in the landmark project at all with uh, Folger Pratt? No, we're not. We're really today focused on our properties for redevelopment. I see. So you're not doing JVs with private private property owners and things like that. Not yet, because we have so much. I and, see. You
1: know, within within where we sit, we probably have five properties within six blocks. So we have enough to really get through. So getting this a gateway into old town, so getting that redeveloped is a really big deal. Interesting. Cool. And it's interesting because, you know with where tax credit financing is right now in the short term, there's great opportunity to do more of it because in a way
2: at times, it's a bit easier to finance some of this than market rate.
1: Not always, but but there is a little window there. So we're trying to make sure we can do as much as we can reasonably handle and the city can handle and can try to take this opportunity to really... Provide
2: great housing for people that need it, and then there's a sufficiency
1: part to it. So we want a family self sufficiency program where
0: if you're in the program, it's designed to be a, a for savings
1: that we collaborate with you on in terms of matching and federally matching dollar for dollar with your savings, so that at some point you decide to start a business and you get a check for all the savings you've done so you can go start a business and get it up and out of public, f- public housing which is just a phenomenal outcome right trying to make real differences in people's lives that
0: hopefully go generations yeah do you have enough developers to help you with this process or do you need more
1: well you know we do we have done a number of RFPs and RFQs but you know we're always, when you get a developer, it depends on what they have. It's a moment in time, right? Like what they have when you, when you start might not be, you know, or when you start the process, it might
0: not be what you have when you make a selection. Yeah, because so I have yeah, problem. I have a team, well, I mean, this community, I've got several developers that are young. Yep. That, some are in the affordable space in D.C. and elsewhere in the, in the region. But there's a couple guys here in alexandria that are buying and re- rehabbing projects so you know absolutely just respond to yeah. rfps basically yeah.
1: yeah and i can send you what we're, what we're doing That'd you be know, great. It's, it's something i'm really passionate about that's great uh, and you know I'm, I'm proud of where it is today and look mm-hmm. i'm just a small piece of it we've got some really strong talent on our board yeah we've got strong leadership in the authority itself, and you know, a really strong relationship with the city. So, you know, when it works, it feels really good. Because I was there, back to our whole thing about when you start and things are hard, and I was there when it was not functional. And so it feels really
0: good and when it is. Are you the head of the board now? Or yeah. I'm not now. But you have been. I have been in the past. Yeah, that's great. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today, Chris?
1: You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right? And so, you know, all these things that happen kind of lead
0: and build on themselves. And so... When you started your firm, did you think you'd be where you are today? I mean, I I, I probably
1: had, I know I had a, a blind vision that it was like we are going to start a sales and marketing company we are going to be successful I'm going to do whatever it takes from my side to get to that point and I've got a partner that feels exactly the same way mm-hmm. we have a shared vision yep but you don't know right Like of you, know, not. you think you know and I mean I look back at my 25 year old self about what I thought I knew versus what I really knew and so you know I think Especially in today's age, you know, politics aside, we have a sense that, you know, everything's a catastrophe, right? Everything that happens is a catastrophe. And so, you know, it's like things are never really quite as bad as you think. And they're maybe never really as good as you think. And so you just kind of have to keep moving forward. It's a journey. Sort of building the the base Mm -hmm. and but you have to have a little bit of a vision for the future of course Mm -hmm. so if you're not thinking long term all the time there are there are incentives and traps in the short term that can really get you if if you're not saying like what does this mean a year from now five years from now ten years from now
0: and that's, you know, it's hard to do, right? I mean, yeah, when you were looking at the Pentagon burning, you probably had a different thought process. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, well, I
1: guess it was a good run, you know. I guess, well, and not only just like, what else is going to happen? Am I going to make it to my office from here, right? Right, right. And, and so, but yeah, you know, exactly. It, right in the moment,
2: it,
1: it, my wife's good at reminding me. It's never as bad or as good. So just yeah. kind of keep, a,
0: keep an even feel. So my usual last question is, if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? You never want to peek too early.
2: <laughs> All right. Probably say that once a week to someone, either internally or otherwise. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, kind of always
0: I mean do you feel like you've peaked I like to think that I'm on a long journey exactly and it's it's a hopefully a steady climb up but someday it'll have to turn down
1: no yeah unfortunately but, but, but you know to me it's like a reminder that I try to think back in six month increments and am I smarter today than I was six months ago is there something I know now that I did not then and are you sort of continuing Mm-hmm. To, gr- to learn, right, and not settle. So yeah, I mean, that's just kind of one of the things that I try to do
0: really Anything else you'd like to add other than what we've already gone you through? No, this has really been fantastic.
1: I mean, a lot of
0: stuff that I haven't
1: necessarily thought about, right, because you do get in your rhythm of the day, so
0: it's kind of good to go back and unearth some of these things. Thank you, Chris, very much. Really appreciate it. So, we just listened to Chris Ballard, founder of McWilliams Ballard, Ballard, co-founder with Ross McWilliams. And Chris had quite an interesting upbringing with his father, being in the more affordable housing space and then going into college. But he just had this determination from the get-go and Academics wasn't his thing. He admitted he was ADHD. (laughs) He went wanted to sell and was very intense in learning the business and going, doing it, starting with David Mayhood and then meeting Mount Ross there and starting his own company. And it's been quite a ride since then. And they've had some ups and they've had some downs. So, as I usually do, I'm having my PostScript guest, and he is Ramiz. Bunawar, Ramiz, welcome today.
3: Thank Thank you for joining me. me. Thanks for having me. So Ramiz, what did you think of the conversation with Chris? Yeah, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to listen to this one. Yeah, I really really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to listen to this one. You know, I I think one of the, the things that I enjoyed about this is that it gave me insight into a side of the industry and a side of the business that I don't normally touch with this being, you know, sort of for sale products and condos. Uh, I did have the opportunity to work on a project um, with the condo kind of component when I was at gyre Lynch. But for most of my career, and for a lot of people, I think this is a side of the industry that they don't experience. So I thought the education behind it was really fascinating. The, the three key takeaways for me, I think number one was perseverance, and just the overall, you know, topic of just fighting through the tough times, you know, whether that's staying strong through you know, economic and real estate downturns, or whether that's ma- maintaining perseverance through personal health issues, which you talked about as well. And even through deals that don't go through your way, I think it's always important to keep your head up and keep pushing and you know, keep your eyes on the prize, as they say. So I thought that was a theme that sort of repeated itself throughout the episode. Number two, and this is obvious in real estate, but there were um, several eye-opening examples of why it's important to be client-focused and relationship-driven. I think it matters in sort of the brokerage industry a lot more than other parts of the industry, but nonetheless, it's important anywhere you are in real estate. Um, And that that, um, approach really manifested itself throughout his career and all the projects he worked on. And then number three, I'd say it's the, the gumption and willingness to do things that other people won't do or can't do. Uh, I think the the story of what happened in Miami was a great example of not only that, but all three of these takeaways. And in particular, because that situation really demonstrated what Chris was willing to do, you know, to to build business and build relationships. So that was a fascinating story and one that I think is is you know really stands out in my mind. So what what were some of your takeaways from it? Well, I will say that the brokerage business
0: has its ups. And it has its downs, and you know, you talked about it, some of the down things and challenges he had to deal with, but he also had some incredible times. The early two thousands, when they got up and running, the two thousand five, the statistics he cited were just phenomenal sales. And working more or less seven days a week and probably twelve hour days, he had the he was young enough to be able to do that, work that hard and get his team built to the point where they got up to 252 employees mm-hmm. during the, the really busy times. And what was interesting is the average size condo deal in that era was over 150 units. Mm-hmm. So that was, you know, they're analogous to the apartment deals being developed at the time maybe. And then suddenly after that, to our the global financial crisis, It dropped below 100. Now it's averaging about 75. Mm -hmm. It's just a function of pace. And and I think a lot of it is also financially constrained. The the lenders just, investors and lenders just don't want to take that kind of risk on for sale product. It's just too expensive and there's too much money out for too long a period of time, is my sense of it. He didn't Mm -hmm. say that in the podcast, but I just know underwriting condominiums sellouts if the sales don't go well, it's just, you know, the carrying costs and the cost of development can eat you yeah. <laughs> alive <laughs> in the development yeah. process. So anyway, it's just interesting trends he talked about during his career. Also, you know, the the evolution of the industry and uh, and then and their growth and how they looked at things and some of the technology things he talked about and being able to understand their customer more. And the other interesting thing was kind of the two different kinds of businesses he runs, which I thought was interesting. One is the B2B business, which is dealing with developers and all the consultants in the pre-development stage and then getting the product ready to sell. And then they have to put a different hat on and sell to consumers and translate what they're selling to people that are not in the real estate business and to understand Mm -hmm. it. So unlike, you know, other parts of our business, except leasing apartments Mm -hmm. or residential sales, it's most of our business is business B2B, you know, dealing with people that understand real estate and you're dealing with experts in the, in the fields you're focused on. So there he has to kind of balance so he needs skill sets on both sides. That's one of the reasons why I asked him, why do you need do you need people, different people, at the front end of the job than you do at the back end of the job? And he said it's kind of a, there's one person that stays with it the whole job, but he does, they do plug and play experts in different aspects of the, of the process during it. He talked
3: about a three-phase process, which I thought was interesting. Any other thoughts to that? Yeah, he, you know, going back to 2005, he mentioned something interesting, which is that back then the, the product or the the sort of scale between apartments and condos was about 50-50, and now mm-hmm. 2010, which I think really speaks to the amount of capital that was available to build those types of projects in 2004, 2005, 2006. And now it's, again, to to your point, you know, it's it's 10%, it's 10% condos, the projects are smaller, they feel riskier, they're more selective. So I think the market has just completely changed. And I, I wonder if there's ever a pendulum swing back the other way. Maybe not quite to 50-50, but I wonder if the market ever gets to 75, 25, let's say. But I think at that time, I mean, he was there was a new opening every week. I think he had 57 active projects going on at once, 2,500 units, 250 employees. You know, they were they were working from for, you know, I think it was more like eighty-eight projects. Right yeah, I'm that's saying. right. Eighty-eight projects going on. Yeah, that's what he they built their new CRM system. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at my notes again. It was fifty-seven launch parties in that year alone. Eighty-eight projects, <laughs> fifty-seven launch so launch party. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But but I think <laughs> to the point of the software that you know I had that in my notes of you know things that they were willing to do that others weren't and in order to keep up with that pace and all that volume they had to build proprietary software and technology to make sure they could manage everything and that was that was the only way to do it really and that's that's pre all of the technology we have today i mean of course excel was there but we didn't have all the same apps and all the underlying you know mobile technology that we have now so it was innovative for its time yeah it, it it's it's a it's a
0: high volume, you know, high velocity business. Although it changed in the global financial crisis, and then of course the pandemic had other changes. So he talks about the market being a barbell strategy, and so the one being the apartment uh, tenant that wants to transition to home homeownership. Mm-hmm. And so he would, you know. That's at the mid, middle market entry entry level into middle market transition for a tenant to a first time home buyer. So that that market and that market's been challenged, obviously, because of interest rates. So there's not as much demand as there could be if rates had been, you know, what they were before. So that slowed it down. Although I think he's seeing some increases there. But you had a double whammy to hit that market with not only interest rates, but the costs, construction costs and land costs and everything else. It's just a very competitive market. And, of course, you're competing with home builders and everything else. So it's it's tough in the condo market for that level. And that's one end of the, the scale. And the other skin being the luxury market, which the high end. And that was appealing to home you know, to homeowners that, you know, or become empty nesters, or just don't want to have the maintenance issues of single family home ownership, mm-hmm. and that business has done pretty well, very well. He mm-hmm. talked about the Chevy Chase uh, Lake project that they just opened, and I'm very proud with Ritz Carlton and the branding of that, and he's got another project in Tyson's. With JW as a brand. So it's, you know, that branding thing is a new kind of a new luxury tool for them to work on. So yeah. the industry
3: evolves. Yeah. Yeah. And on that point, he did say, I remember him talking about how, you know, selling units used to be about storytelling and then the numbers came second. And now it feels like it's much more numbers driven. And he had said that, you know, people buy on emotion and they underpin on on the financials. I do wonder if this pivot or this focus on branded projects is meant to bring back more of the story. Because these, you know, JW and Ritz and others have a brand that people recognize and know about. And I wonder if that brand is really a part of the story that they're trying to tell. Um, Oh, it most certainly is. And I think that, you know there's an
0: image thing that people want and also services i mean mm-hmm. these are hotel type services at a, at a in a residence and you are going to pay up for that mm-hmm. uh, the condo fees will probably be pretty significant I, oh yeah but you know that's what you you get what you pay for you hope when you buy that and so the quality of the unit. and uh, i actually took uh, our group, Iconic Journey, there last week to tour the Chevy Chase Lake project. And, you know, the amenities are absolute top drawer for mm-hmm. that. Wow. Um, because not only do they have that building, but they have three other buildings, multifamily buildings of different levels that they have under construction. So it's like an entire complex, and the amenities are shared. However, I was told that the condo owners are gonna to have to pay to use the multifamily facilities because the multifamily tenants cannot use the condo. <laughs> so, you know, they gotta make it fair. Yeah. So if you if you're gonna buy a condo, you're gonna pay for using the other amenities in the project. So, but it's it's a pretty special project. Yeah. And so I agree that the branding side is going to be a big part but I think all of residential real estate's changing to make it more experiential particularly the multifamily and condominium business to make experiences and have you know special reasons to be there and office use now within residential properties because people aren't going to the office they want to have access to office type amenities may not be in the unit maybe it's part of the pro- as the, the package of the, the product so that's com- we didn't talk about that but you know that's going to be part of it we did talk a little bit about the impact of the office market a little bit um, but you know how it affects the industry mm-hmm. and the and we also you know we talked a lot about the brokerage evolution so
3: any other thoughts yeah, I think the, the story in Miami, that was a fascinating tale, you know, to, to get a call from someone on a, on a Saturday night and next thing you know, you're taking three flights to go all the way across the country to pitch on a project you don't know anything about with a major developer, you know, competing against other, other companies that do what you do and to win that business without a presentation, I think really speaks to how authentic they are and how well they know their business. And also, how well they can tell a story. You know, storytelling is such an important part of what we do. But that's that's the kind of story you can tell your kids and your grandkids. You know, for a while. And I, uh, you know, that that spoke volumes to me about who he is and what the company is all about. Well, you know, you, I didn't hear. He didn't tell
0: me tell what the actual pitch was that they made. Mm-hmm. But. All he had to do was talk about his performance in the in the you know five years prior to the to the global financial crisis mm-hmm. to see what how innovative and aggressive they were and getting sales done and managing the volume they were able to do, but you know you were talking about a distressed sale of four hundred and fifty units mm-hmm. in in Fort Myers, Florida. That was tough. I think yeah. it was a toughest side. But coming out of the global financial crisis. But you know they had this auction mentality, so they had it figured out, but it was interesting. he said they didn't even the auctioneer that got him into the job wasn't even used for the product, which I thought was kind of interesting yeah. <laughs> so but you know, Chris has a commanding presence to him, mm-hmm. which I thought I, came through when we when we met and talked, so he has a way of you know. Being on top of things, giving confidence to, you know, business people. And then on the same time, he could put the hat on to sell, I'm sure, to residents. So he's got that that frenetic sales approach, you know, the mm-hmm. ADHD, you know, get it done brokerage type mentality
3: that you need to have. And that is, yeah. business. Yeah. So. Yeah. Any other thoughts, Ramiz? Yeah, I think what what we could wrap up on here is the fascinating point towards the end about bank loans, which which kind of caught me by surprise. Even though you know, it's, perhaps it's obvious when you think about it, but the idea that the bigger the loan, if you have a big loan, you own the bank, but if you have a small loan, the bank owns you. I, I think that's just really interesting to think about, and because you know, I, I haven't worked on the lender side before. So banks see those loans as very, you know, being very different than the way developers see those loans. And you have you've had a long career on the mortgage banking side of the industry, and a lot more experience certainly than I do. What's what's your perspective on that, or can you add any insight to it? It's interesting
0: Uh, in the workout business. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're having to sit down with lenders, um, it's true. If you have a huge portfolio the lenders come begging to you you know what can we do how do we work things out because they do not want to take back a huge mess or a big brick product and chris's story about the developer his client that brought the big box in (laughs) with 500 keys of a project that went bust and having chris at the table he says okay, lenders, if we can't work something out, well, I've got a present for you and it's 500 keys. And Chris will help you sell it out. Yeah. If we can work it out, then maybe I can help you too. Good. Yeah. Oh, just interesting. So that's one nightmare a lender does not want to have. But as you say, with a smaller project, uh, there are all kinds of financial repercussions if you go into foreclosure on an, on a, a development deal primarily to your not only to your net worth losing the project, your reputation and also uh, the after tax implications could be pretty significant to an owner developer mm-hmm. on that. But if you have a huge project, the irony is that you can work something out where the lender will not allow that to happen where you don't take the big big, big hit. Now there's a there's a there's a line there and obviously it's hard to say where that line is and that changes very often depending on the real estate uh if it if it's more of a nightmare than the lenders want to take on then you you have more power if it's not if it's if it's a thing they can probably turn quickly you're going to be in trouble if it's an asset that they think they can move you're not going to have much leverage especially if it's an easily managed process of selling it or liquidating the asset, you're in tough. So the irony is the worse the situation, the better the borrower is going in a workout.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That's what's ironic. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't really crystallize that way when you think about it on the surface, but yeah, that's reality. Yeah. No one wants the football.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When it's, when it's you know when it's greasy and you get you know a real project ahead of you to work it out so well thank you Ramiz for your candid comments and thank you listeners and I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Chris and we'll be back again in the next couple of weeks for next the next interview thank you for joining me